This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Tuesday morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We are once again Dr. Mattless, but that's okay. He's still in beautiful St. George, Utah. And uh, again, we we told him that if he didn't get back here soon, he uh, we would release more and more information each and every day about his whereabouts, so that uh, his listeners can follow up on him just to make sure he's okay. We just want to make sure he's okay. Anyway, he's missed. We're still going to have a good time because today is Walk Around Things Day. I thought this was interesting. There are so many options from the lighthearted method of simply walking around things where you may circle a fire hydrant a couple of times for fun on the way to work. Have you ever done that for fun? No, I'm usually going somewhere. Okay. I just aimlessly wander. Because usually when I see a fire hydrant, I I think, wouldn't that be fun if I just circled that a couple of times? Uh, So to the more exercise-conscious method of walking around the park, you usually walk through as a shortcut. This day reminds us that sometimes you have to pick your battles, and sometimes the best way to deal with a situation is by simply not dealing with it at all. So is it kind of like beating around the bush? Sure. Okay. So if you see a fire hydrant today, just uh, walk around it a few times, I guess. Today is also vitamin C day, so get lots of vitamin C just today. You don't have to worry about the other days, but today it's very important. Just avoid scurvy. That's all they want. Yeah. Watch out for that scurvy. Doesn't that only happen on pirate ships? Yeah. Okay. And it's pretty much in all our food anyways, so we're good. Yeah. All right. So don't worry about it. Crisis averted. Not a thing. <laughs> we'll also be talking about the uh, the basketball game, Gonzaga versus North Carolina. And apparently, I didn't watch it, but apparently it was not a good game. It was a game. I don't know if you – I mean <laughs> – they scored that, points. People won. I think that whatever. was the headline when I when I turned on uh, ESPN I, I just, and said it was a it, game. It was a game. I have a hard time watching putting a basketball game in a uh, NFL football stadium. Hmm. Uh, it's just the it's just weird. Like all the players sit below the court because they have to elevate it on the football field. Plus, they want to like elevate it so it's easier to see. I guess you get just for the TV audience and for the hmm. stadium audience. There's all these photos of here's the worst seat. And someone stands in the seat and takes a picture of what it would look like to watch the game from the seat. You can't see anything. <laughs> You're paying $350 for that ticket. Wow. You're against the back wall of the upper bowl, upper deck of where, where did they play? You remember? Oh, it was in Arizona. So Arizona. In, where the Arizona Cardinals play. And they're in the upper deck. And you can't see the game, but you just paid $300 for a ticket. You hmm. know, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. It's like you have to be in the moment. You have to be there. Like, really, you can't see what's happening. So are you just gauging what's happening based on the audience response? I guess. Which sounds and, like people were really upset with all the fouls and everything. Right. And for the players, you're in this situation where in all the basketball stadiums, like you have your the basketball hoop and then the crowd's right there, and it usually, usually because it's a the the stadiums are a bowl it like slopes up, but in the football stadium it's flat, 
because you're on the middle of a 100-yard field. Right. And so the, there's there's fans there, but it's just flat. So the, the sight lines are different. What it looks like when you shoot the basketball, it's different. There's nothing behind the glass. It's just kind of you, – you, because all the glass is transparent, obviously. Yeah. You see through the hoop, and it just goes on forever because there's nothing there. Huh. So some of the players comment about how it's hard to – to get their you know range of shooting again back, and they can just the way things look throws everybody off. And the whole reason it's in a football stadium is greed, hmm. right? They're selling tickets. It's about money. There's no reason for the game to be in there except you want to put a hundred thousand people or eighty to sixty, whatever it is, a bigger amount that you could get in a basketball stadium. So, so it's just this whole weird environment for this game, and the players don't usually play that well. So is is Gonzaga saying? That it's the no, stadium's a, fault? This is a comment that's been going on for like 20 years, okay. ever since they moved the championship round into football stadiums so they could sell more tickets. Because Just it's stay. about the student athletes. Hmm. You know what they ought to do? They'll all drop out of school the second they go pro, so it's fine. They ought to just play in a basketball stadium yeah. and then play a second game for all the people that couldn't get into the first one. I guess, but I mean, all the people who can't. You know, and then that, if they if there's a if they tie, then they have to do a tiebreaker that, for a third game. That's more tickets. That overflow audience can't really see the game anyways, hmm. right? Because you, when you if you put the basketball stadium audience in, they can see. Once you get to the football, the the rest of the audience, which is the football stadium audience, they can't really see what's happening anyways. They might as well just watch at home. Moral of the story: We Stay always home, talk watch about the game. this. We talk about this all the time. Yeah. It's the best seat in the house. Yeah. You get to see all the replays. Everything's crystal clear. You can go to the bathroom when you want. Nobody spills beer on you. And it's fun until the last about five minutes when they just start fouling everyone and the clock just ticks every couple seconds <laughs> and it takes about an hour to get through five minutes. Just like football. Yeah. <gasps> Maybe there's something there. <laughs> Maybe depends. not. I wouldn't look too hard. Anyway, uh, so we'll be talking about that game throughout the show, and especially when we speak with Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation at the end of the show here. But uh, first, let's head on over to Terry South and see what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? The fight to replace Obamacare is not over. Vice President Mike Pence and two senior White House officials offered up a carrot in a closed-door meeting Monday night with their biggest GOP foe on the issue, the House Freedom Caucus. They reportedly offered the ability for states to apply for waivers for two Obamacare coverage requirements, essential health benefits, which mandates coverage in 10 categories like prescription drugs and maternity care, and community rating, which forces plans to charge all members of an age group the same price. Doing away with those essential means, those essentials means eliminating the pre-existing condition safeguards mm. that Obamacare tenant that Trump has now promised to maintain. Uh, the Freedom Caucus expects to get the offer in writing today. The caucus head, uh, Representative Mark Meadows, responded favorably to it in comments to the New York Times. Uh, the Times goes on and explains technically the deal would still prevent insurers from denying coverage to people with a history of illness, but without the community rating, health plans would, would be free to charge those patients as much as they wanted. So they give hmm. the example, if you are a cancer patient, there's a health plan for you. It's just going to charge you through the roof for the treatment. Sure. So it doesn't really help the person with cancer that the Obamacare yeah. kind of set some limits on how much you could charge for, say, chemotherapy. Okay. So do you think this is going to sway anybody or not? I don't know. Really? I mean, that's another <laughs> thing that Trump promised, and now they seem to be using it as a as a bargaining chip and doesn't seem to uh, – people. I don't know if people pay attention close enough to notice that these things are happening. Yeah. But this could – I mean, 
Would the Freedom Caucus go with it? I don't know. Sometimes they, they – as one person said, if the Ten Commandments were up for uh, vote, the Freedom Caucus would vote it down. So we'll see, we'll see where they go. So just don't get sick, I guess. Yeah. President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, cleared a key Senate hurdle on Monday when the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to send the nomination to the full Senate for a vote, the vote being along party lines, 11 Republicans, 9 Democrats. In opposition, uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said Sunday that Gorsuch will be confirmed by the Senate one way or another. So uh, either he gets the vote or they do the uh, nuclear option and uh, break the filibuster and push him through by changing the rules. We'll see what happens. President Trump signed legislation Monday that repealed a series of Obama-era rules that protected Internet users' privacy. The rules, which have yet to take effect, would have required Internet users' consent before Internet service providers collect information on the user's location, browsing history, information on their finances, health care, or their children. So we could potentially see changes so that we're not – I'm not reminded of, oh, yeah, I looked that up on Amazon and now I'm reminded for – or reminded of it for the rest of my life. Possibly because okay. they'll sell things to you. Now, Facebook and like uh, Google do this, but you click a little link that says you agree – and this would be your internet provider not having to send you some sort of opt-in measure. You would just hmm. be in the program. So congratulations. If you, they, they say they're not going to do that, but when people get that extra information, they can sell against it. And that's what Google does to sell, make all the money they do. The internet companies want to do that also. So hmm. they want to take your private information, as you said, put products up against it, and then put that in front of you. So there will be more ads more pop-ups, more videos that you can't stop. Uh. It's going to be great. It's going to make the internet wonderful. Um, In other news, President Trump has boasted about the lengths he's gone in order to distance himself from his business empire. Remember, we had that press conference. There was all these manila envelopes piled up. This is all the – this is the agreement on how I'm going to separate myself from my companies. Well, there's a little clause, updated language allowing Trump to draw money from his more than 400 businesses at any time without disclosing it. The clause was added via a document signed February 10th, which states that the trust shall distribute net income or principal to Donald J. Trump at his request, including everything from profits to an actual business itself. Richard Painter of the White House Ethics Council under George W. Bush condemned the latest move as illustrating that Trump controls the businesses and called it a conflict of interest. So we'll – if I remember correctly, the reporters weren't allowed to uh, review any of those documents. No, they went up to look in the doc- documents and some people got in front. No, 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 you can't touch these. They were I, simply there for, you know, the photo op. Yeah, and then on Saturday Night Live, they were actually just – it was just one big chunk, fake yeah. chunk of documents. A big plastic yeah. prop. And as we talked about, North Carolina wins its sixth national title. Uh, it's the uh, third under the head coach Roy Williams – who was there on the sidelines flaunting his, I think, his second national championship ring, which is huge and could hurt somebody if he got, you know, wild with his hand gestures. Sure, yeah. Just a massive chunk of metal. So, oh, man, people were really pulling for Gonzaga to win. Sure. I know you Everybody, were. Well, pulling in the sense of <laughs> I have a, a binary choice and I chose one versus the other. Yeah, so, yeah, Gonzaga. So they were one and, and North Carolina was zero? I you know. <laughs> They have, what, five? Give somebody else a title? Yeah. Oh, 
See, that's what the great thing about the the Last World series was that it was gonna it was great no matter what happened. The Cubs no. hadn't won for over a hundred years, and the Indians hadn't won for close to a hundred. I think nobody would care if Cleveland won. Really, it was the Cubs. That was the whole story. <sighs> if the Cubs lost, the whole story would be how the Cubs failed. See, no one would go, oh, good job, Cleveland. The Man, Cubs, the Cubs knocked my Dodgers out of the playoffs, and I was still rooting for the Cubs. Mm. So I think you're right. I think People just like the Cubs. They want the Cubs to win. I wanted them because I didn't want to hear about that goat anymore. Oh. Just to end it. It was like every year, oh, the goat got him. Like, come on. Some guy dragged a goat in 1907. Come on. <laughs> So story. getting back to Gorsuch, is yep. that that's going down on Friday? That's what they're saying. They'll have the vote Friday. Okay. And I don't know what the process will be. It, it'll probably be extremely boring. It'll be covered extensively by C-SPAN. See, now, how long does it take <laughs> for them to invoke that nuclear option? I don't know. We don't know the logistics of that. No. I, and then it's this parliamentary stuff, and then the speaker recognizes the, Oh, come on. <laughs> Oh, it's boring, but it's how, you know, how this process works. But I don't know. You hear the the it goes back to what was it? Reagan or I can't remember. It was uh, Robert Bork was a back in the 80s was a guy that was uh, he's a a just a a candidate for the Supreme Court. And he came in and he was controversial. And so there was a fight back and forth. And those the that fight still resonates with many of the people, mainly because they're super old and they're still in office, and they hold that grudge. And there's been like five or six different instances over the last 30 years where the Democrats are like, you did this, and the Republicans are like, you did this, and it's all come to a head now where they're not even going to try to talk. Mm. They're going to, you going to do this? No, fine. We're just going to blow this all up and do our own thing. And, you know, you know, as they change the rules and make it so that you just get a simple majority to push them through. Is there going to be any substance to this filibuster, or is it literally just going to be somebody up there reading the dictionary? Well, no. I don't think there's going to be that form of a filibuster. Okay. It's simply the fact that the Democrats aren't going to vote for this guy. That will be Hmm. their filibuster, and they'll break it by just changing the rules. We're not going to have, like, Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs and Ham or something like he did when he shut down the government. See, now that I would tune in to watch. That's okay for about five minutes. Then you're like land reading of Dr. Seuss. Yeah, but then you start thinking, like, people are out of work. You know, government people were, you know, government uh, employees were sent home for no reason. You know, and then you're like, well, people are like, well, that's great. The IRS isn't working. Well, so is the like the VA hospitals. They're they're also understaffed now because we shut the government down. Sure. And you speaking know? of a government shutdown, it seems like if somebody's up there reading green eggs and ham, that government official has now become uh, non uh, essential. Yeah. yeah. In effect, yes. <laughs> so, but there's wow. several fights coming up, and it's it's odd that. They're still fighting. It's like the Republicans control the House, the Senate, and the White House. And it just seems like it's the same government we've had for the last, what, 8 to 12 years. Was it just uh, grinding to a halt for no reason. Was it Orrin Hatch that a while back uh, came up with this option of the nuclear option? That No, no, no. Oh, this goes way back. Yeah, it goes beyond – well, not, not, not beyond him, but he didn't come up with this idea. Some okay. other people did. Mm. And they did it before with lower courts. Uh, some federal courts and some circuit courts that weren't being uh, pushed through with uh, under, under when President Obama was there and the Republicans were blocking there. And uh, so the Democrats went ahead, blew out the rules and let those lower court judges go through on a simple majority. Now they're just taking those rules and using them for a Supreme Court. Wow. Which they never thought they would do because the Supreme Court is so important. But 
we're just nobody cares anymore. We're just fighting for spite now. Seems kind of like a slippery slope. Yeah, like they'll just keep lowering the number of votes needed. To, oh, fine, you're not going to go our way. We'll just do it this way. Yeah, we'll just jam mm. it through. But several of the uh, 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 what was it? The uh, cabinet appointees went through the same way because Democrats didn't even show up to the meeting. Wow. So the Republicans just went, fine, change the rules, you're in. Goodbye. And I'm like, great. It's called government. Sounds like elementary school tactics. A lot of it is. It seems very juvenile. Wow. It's like, you did this, fine, we're going to retaliate. And then then you just keep having to escalate it because how do you retaliate? You can't do the same. You have to do something a little bit worse, a little bit more, a little bit more cutting. Yeah. And you just keep digging in. And so it's very juvenile. You, you don't remember doing that when you were a kid, just when things weren't going your way? Well, oh, yeah. oh no, no, This is actually and just making up the rules as you go along. Right. Oh, my goodness. Well. So fun times. Hopefully. And that's not even the half of what I had to figure out how to present today. There was like five different things that happened yesterday. Newspaper reports about people in the administration talking with people they shouldn't be talking to. Like FBI involved, people going to islands in the Indian Ocean to meet with people they may or may not have should have been, you know, representing the administration, talking to them, and makes just, you, it makes, goes on and on. Yeah, makes you want to take another look at who's essential and who's non-essential in government. Interesting. Well, hopefully they can figure it out. And oh, see, we just need to talk to each other. We need to talk to each other. And we need to make compromises, and we need to not make decisions based solely on what our voters want and what the lobbyists want. Anyway, I need to get off my soapbox because we have a very important topic when we return. We're going to be speaking with Kevin Johnson, who's going to be talking to us a little bit more about Trump's immigration policies and shedding some more light on those, and maybe how they differ and uh, how they might be the same as Obama's immigration policies. That's up next when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is uh, Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in St. George. Hopefully he wanted me to tell you that. Anyway, uh, President Trump's immigration policies have been a huge part of his presidential administration. Although his efforts have focused on the Middle East, his current policies concerning Latin America are very similar to the Obama administration. His main focus has been deporting undocumented immigrants with criminal histories. And here to speak with us today about this is Dean Kevin Johnson, a professor of public interest law and of Chicana studies at UC Davis. Uh, Dean, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Oh, thanks for having me. Do you prefer Dean or Kevin? Kevin's fine. Oh, okay. All right. So um, thank you once again for, for being on the show. Um, I'm just curious to know... Could you could you start out by talking to us about what were uh, President Obama's immigration policies? And then from there, we can talk about how maybe they're similar to Trump's policies and how they differ. Sure. Uh, well, President Obama, in his first four years in office, focused primarily on increasing the number of uh, immigrants removed from the country because of uh, criminal problems. Uh, and he set a, a number of removal records for the United States of about 400,000 a year uh, in his first four years in office. In fact, some 
some immigrant advocacy groups refer, refer to President Obama as the deporter-in-chief. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and President Obama did a, a number of things uh, trying to refine uh, and, um, imp- in, in his view, improve uh, sort of the criminal justice pipeline into the immigration removal system. So he began working very closely with state and local governments to try to get them to turn over persons arre- immigrants arrested for crimes uh, to, the, to the federal government. And he had a program called Secure Communities that was very effective at that. Uh, and uh, he was able to greatly increase removal numbers. The thing that some people focus more on than the removals is on his Deferred Action Program for um, childhood arrivals. Uh, undocumented immigrants who were brought here as children by their parents. Uh, and, and there was some temporary limited relief provided to that group of people. Um, but but it, it really is sort of overshadowed by the you know, incredible increase in removal efforts over, over the, the first four years. And the idea, I think, of President Obama was that, well, we'll show we're committed to enforcement, and then we'll try to convince Congress to pass comprehensive immigration reform. What happened was there were a lot of deportations, a lot of families that were affected, a lot of, a lot of concerns with the deportation policies. But in the end, um, President Obama wasn't able to convince Congress to pass uh, comprehensive immigration reform. So um, then, we, then we come to, to President Trump, and he is building on um, President Obama's criminal removal system and is trying to expand it somewhat and trying to increase the numbers uh, of people deported from the country. And it's important to note that, uh, that the focus is not just on undocumented immigrants, but on lawful permanent residents, that, that is, green card holders who've been, been arrested for particular crimes. And, and President Trump, in his January 25th executive order, seeks to expand the sort of removal process to include people, who, immigrants who've been arrested of crimes, uh, and has taken a, the Obama administration's policy to new and um, more aggressive levels. So thank you for that, for that background, too. Um, what are your thoughts and opinions on, on what President Trump is doing with his initiatives? Well, I think that um, it's ironic to me that he was very critical of President Obama for in, engaging in executive actions when so far uh, he's um, issued four immigration executive orders that take, uh, take very uh, aggressive steps on immigration, um, it would seem to me that the, the most logical approach uh, would be to go to Congress and try to get some kind of comprehensive immigration reform through Congress. And I understand this may not be the best time um, for rational heads to prevail, but it seems to me that it, we really have a, an immigration system that needs serious reforms. Most people would agree with that. We have an Immigration and Nationality Act, which was passed in 1952, is kind of a, a, you know, um, a, a, a symptom, if you will, of the Cold War and really is designed to keep out communists from the United States and is not really attuned to dealing with the global labor migration and modern uh, needs for immigrant labor in the United States. So, so I think what we really need to do uh, and I don't think it's a Democratic-Republican issue. I think it's really a, um, an issue of trying to figure out a, a solution to our legal immigration as well as our undocumented immigration issues. 
So, so I think we need some, some possible reform of the legal immigration laws. I think we need some kind of resolution of um, whether you call it a path to legalization for undocumented immigrants or, or some kind of um, treatment, uh, making it clear what, what their status is, if any, under the law. Uh, and I also think that there's probably a clamoring for some more, uh, probably more modest enforcement measures than taken by President Trump. But there probably is some support for, for more enforcement. So, so I do think it's legal immigration, undocumented immigration, uh, and enforcement that really have to be focused on in some kind of um, comprehensive congressional solution. Interesting. Kevin, I've got this article in front of me that, that you wrote, and uh, you mentioned that Trump is likely to encounter some the, the same resistance that Obama did on, on his immigration enforcement. And I'm just curious to know why, why you think that is. Well, I, I think that um, some of the steps he's, take, he's taken in his executive orders uh, arguably violate some very basic constitutional rights that all people in the country have. He's, he's proposed expanding what's called expedited removal, uh, which would mean that you could have summary deportations of people nowhere near the border uh, and who have lived here for, for as long as two years. And that big expansion is, is something that many people would find antithetical to basic due process rights because it's a kind of a big deal to remove somebody from the country and from their family and friends and others. And, and if we're going to do it, it seems we should do it in a constitutional way. Um, so, so I think that um, you know we're going to expect some resistance from groups who um, want to ensure that the rights of people within our jurisdiction are protected. Uh, and there are other steps that, that, that President Trump is suggesting, including increased detention of immigrants as a method of immigration enforcement. He's talked about building more detention facilities near the border. Uh, he's talked about not allowing anybody to post a bond and be released from custody. And, and again, that kind of approach um, to, you know, raises some very serious constitutional questions about how we treat immigrants, what rights, if, if any, they have. Uh, and, and some would also say, is it the right way to be spending uh, our very scarce uh, federal budgetary dollars? So, so I think that, you know, there's, this is a, it's a very difficult issue to try to get our minds around. In almost any position you take, you're going to get some resistance. Uh, and it's, it's, it's like walking through a minefield of sorts, trying to come up with something that can be a compromise and in, in in appeal to a variety of constituencies. That's an interesting image, too, yeah. Um, so do you think that our justice system is racially biased and how did if so how does that affect the deportation of immigrants that's a good question and it's been an issue of a very serious contention in the united states for um most definitely the last 10 years if not you know a lot longer time than that uh and i do think that if we we look at the, the basic raw data um, you know, uh, we, we see that, you know, African-Americans and Latinos are much more likely to, to um, be um, punished in our justice system. And, you know, we, we often hear that there are more African-Americans in prison than there are in, in colleges and universities. not sure if that's quite accurate, but it does give you an idea that, you know, we, we have a justice system that, that certainly is, is, is a place where African-Americans and Latinos are overrepresented. 
And we also have a, a situation where we, we, we repeatedly hear of high-profile incidents of um, um, killings of young African-American men by police. Uh, and, you know, Ferguson, Missouri is, is a well-known example, and there, there are other cities as well. So there, there's, there, there certainly is a concern that there's, there's some racial bias. It's hard to definitively say there is or there isn't racial bias in our criminal justice system. But there have been, for many years, concerned with um, you know, the, the incidents of racial profiling by police uh, and disparate enforcement of, of the criminal justice laws on, on minority communities, and oftentimes poor in minority communities uh, to, together. So, so I, I think if you, you base a immigration removal system uh, on um, people who come into contact with the criminal justice system, including people who've been arrested, not nearly convicted, you can expect an immigration removal system that, that deports um, um, racial minorities um, more than, 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 than any others. And if you look at our current removal system, uh, under President Obama, about 95% of the people removed from the United States every year uh, were from Mexico or Central America. Uh, roughly about but less about half of all immigrants come from Mexico or Latin America. So we have 95% to 50%. Um, it's hard to say for sure what's going on, but my best guess is that you know sort of the disparities in the criminal justice system affect the uh, removal numbers that we see and the disparate impact on, on Latinos. Interesting. So do you do you feel like then that more focus is being placed on on ethnic identity and religious affiliation when it comes to immigration or do you think there's more of a focus on the actual citizenship? Well, I, I, I think it's hard. When you look at somebody, you can't necessarily say whether they're a citizen or an undocumented immigrant or a lawful permanent resident. But unfortunately, there are, there are some fairly widely held stereotypes about who's likely to be an immigrant, who's likely to be uh, a citizen, who's likely to be a terrorist. Uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, we, we see problems um, when we, certainly when we allow local law enforcement to be policing our immigration laws. In, in Arizona, in Maricopa County, there's a sheriff, now he's been voted out, out of office, Joe Arpaio, uh, who for many years had taken a, an aggressive immigration enforcement stance um, and he, he, in fact, had a, uh, an agreement with the Department of Homeland Security to help um, enforce the U.S. immigration laws. Well, as it turned out, a, a federal court later found that you know, his office, the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, had engaged in a pattern and a practice of, um, of, of, of racial profiling and in violating the constitutional rights of, of not just immigrants, but also of U.S. citizens who were Latinos. So it, it's it's a, it's a serious concern that we can't take lightly, and I think that um, you know it, it really is um, difficult to enforce the immigration laws. But it's 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 also pretty easy to over enforce those laws if we rely uh, rely on stereotypes. As we all know, there there are many um, Mexican Americans who've been citizens for many generations, and we can't just guess from physical appearance or otherwise what their immigration status is. Unfortunately, many people just presume that um, many Latinos and, and many Asians uh, are immigrants when that may not, be, in fact, be the case. Mm. 
Interesting stuff. Kevin, let's do this. Let's take a break. Uh, When we come back, I want to continue the discussion with you uh, and uh, ask you a little bit more about sanctuary cities, what those are, and and, uh, uh, we'll, we'll continue that discussion when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, and we are speaking with Kevin Johnson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Kevin Johnson, who is a professor of public interest law and of Chicana studies at UC Davis. And uh, before the break, we were talking about Obama uh, versus Trump's immigration policies and the similarities and differences between those policies. And uh, Kevin, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, thanks. So I'm just curious, uh, what got you interested in? in immigration, the subject of immigration, to begin with? Well, um, I grew up in Los Angeles, um, and um, over, over the course of my, my lifetime, I, I worked with undocumented immigrants, I worked with legal immigrants, I grew up in a um, sort of a very mixed Anglo-Mexican-American community in, in sort of the San Gabriel Valley, sort of east of Los, Los Angeles. And uh, I, I, so I had that experience. Um, but also in the 1980s, they began working with um, asylum seekers from Central America. Uh, I'm, an, I'm an attorney, and I began handling some pro bono cases on their behalf, uh, seeking asylum for people who were fleeing civil wars in Central America. And they became very interested in how the law operated uh, and how there was this humanitarian form of relief available to people fleeing violence and persecution. Some, there were some very compelling stories that I heard from clients, uh, and it, it sort of made me very interested in, in our, how our immigration laws worked uh, and sometimes didn't work. Uh, and it um, made me think a lot about uh, what we should have in our immigration laws. And that's how I became very interested. And over the course of my career in, in academia, I began looking more closely at the immigration laws, their history, uh, and how we might improve them. So you mentioned that uh, your study interests include Central America. We've been talking about President Trump's immigration policies. What can you tell us about what's going on with uh, Trump's plans for a wall? Well, I mean, uh, one of the executive orders they issued in January uh, has um, um, you know, made it, the wall a priority, uh, and, it, it, and there's funding that's being allocated, at least in the current budget proposed uh, and being considered by the House of Representatives. Uh, and there's a contract that's out to bid on, on, on the wall and in construction of the wall. Now, now the truth is, is that Parts of the border have been uh, walled off for, for a good period of time. If you go south of San Diego along the border, there's, there's a fairly formidable uh, barrier um, that goes out into the ocean and goes inland. But there are various places over um, you know, the long border between the United States and Mexico that aren't walled at this point. And it, it appears that you know, there's going to be an effort made to um, uh, fill in those gaps. Um, now, there's a whole other separate set of questions about whether building a wall will effectively deter um, undocumented immigration 
or whether there'll just be ways that people use who are desperate to, to go over the wall. Uh, it is clear that at least the barriers that have been built over the last 20 years have redirected migration away from larger urban areas into more remote locations where people are more likely to um, die, um, you know, suffer the elements. And one of the things, one of the very sad things that people often don't realize is that we have um, regular deaths of people trying to cross the border through mountains and deserts, um, risking it all to try to make it to the United States. Uh, and this has been going on for quite some time uh, and tells you a little bit about how, uh, how desperate some people are to make the United States. I'm not saying they're not violating the law, but by creating barriers and increasing enforcement, we also have increased the death toll uh, along the U.S.-Mexico border. And I think um, that's likely to uh, continue uh, as this wall gets constructed and, and goes up uh, and continues to redirect migration. Wow. Now, um, just getting, uh, just looking at the financial aspect of this, uh, do you... Do you feel like Trump is still expecting Mexico to pay, or do you think he's going to try to get that money out of them uh, another way, as, maybe in, as far as withholding aid to them? Well, it's hard to tell. I mean, in, in part, in, I'm, I'm just, I don't want to be harsh, um, but I'm just not sure if some of the things he says are just designed to, um, you know, to be kind of like campaign statements whether he really thinks there's a plan for getting Mexico to pay for the wall. Um, so so I, I do know that, that Congress hasn't allocated as much money to the border uh, wall as, as he would like. Uh, and if he, he, if he does want to continue construction, he's going to have to figure out how to, how to fund this. But the Mexican government has been pretty emphatic that they're not going to um, uh, pay for the wall. Uh, and so I, I'm just not sure how this is going to end up. Um, it, it, and I just also am not sure just how serious, uh, even though he, he says it pretty regularly, how serious President Trump is that, um, you know, Mexico is going to pay for it. Um, so so it's, it's hard for me to decipher, frankly. Right. So talk to us now about sanctuary cities, what they are, and if uh, federal policies affect them. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and um, I think it's an important one that, that we, we all try to get a better understanding of. Originally, sanctuary cities were cities that declared themselves to be sanctuaries for, for Central Americans uh, in the 1980s. The original sanctuary cities were, were cities like, like San Francisco that it was encouraging Central Americans to settle there because they were fleeing civil wars, and the idea was that we wanted to provide refuge and safety in support for these uh, people who have fled violence. Uh, over time, this idea of sanctuary cities has taken on um, sim- symbolic and, and other meanings. Now, one of the things that, that is very important to, to keep in mind is that under federal law, as well as uh, the various executive orders that President Trump has issued, there's no firmly defined thing um, known as a sanctuary city. There's no real definition of what one is. Um, now, some cities, uh, San Francisco is one of them, have declared that they're a sanctuary city. Um, and they've said, you know, we're going to limit 
the cooperation of our local police with with uh, the federal immigration authorities. Other cities have adopted similar policies, but don't go so far to call themselves sanctuary cities. Um, and some cities fully cooperate with the immigration federal immigration authorities. Uh, so there's a real range in, in, of city uh, you know, cooperation with federal immigration enforcement. Now, one of the concerns that I have uh, with President Trump's proposal to defund sanctuary cities uh, is that there's no definition, so it's, it's unclear what cities he's going to target for defunding. Um, so, and, and it's you know, it would seem to me. Uh, that if you want to, to reduce funding to cities for violating federal law or federal policy, you need some kind of congressional authorization for that. And there's some examples of, of that. You know, there's um, you know, the, the federal highway funding is predicated um, on the states having a speed limit of, of, at a, of a certain rate. Um, and um, that's viewed as you know, uh, something Congress decided to earmark federal funding for those states. Uh, here, Congress hasn't really done anything, um, but there's a lot of sort of saber-rattling by President Trump and Attorney General Sessions about how cities and states are going to be defunded, uh, and that's having some effect on some cities. Uh, I, I, I do think that we're going to continue seeing some of this tension between the federal government and the state government, because there's some states... California included, that are very worried about um, uh, cooperating with federal immigration enforcement uh, and is, are going to do just what's required by federal law. There's other states that um, uh, and localities have similar views. And one of the big issues for local police is that um, they, they need the cooperation of immigrants in the community uh, if they want to fight crime, if you want to get witnesses to come forward, you want to get crime victims to come forward, uh, and, and you and you want to um, um, get criminal suspects to surrender voluntarily. Uh, if you um, are viewed as part of the federal immigration enforcement machinery, it's going to really be much harder to get that cooperation. So some cities like Los Angeles, you know, the Los Angeles Police Department, that's very conservative in a lot of ways. Um, has a policy that they don't the police officers don't inquire into the immigration status of uh, crime victims or crime suspects or crime you know, witnesses. Really? And they, yeah, and they, and they have that policy because uh, they they want to make sure that uh, the immigrant community, which comprises over half of Los Angeles County, um, cooperates with the police. Um, so that it, in, in a, it's not really a sanctuary issue. It's an effective law enforcement issue. Um, so, so I think some local police chiefs, some people might be surprised, oppose uh, much cooperation with federal immigration enforcement, not because they want to be soft on crime or soft on immigrants, but because they want to be pro-law enforcement, and they want to make sure that immigrants go to the police, report crimes, help fight crime. Yeah. Well, Kevin, as we wrap up the interview here, uh, I would just I'm curious to know if if you could have a conversation with President Trump or somebody in his cabinet, what mm -hmm. advice would you give uh, to him or to somebody in his cabinet if they were to ask you about uh, immigration? What would you well, tell them? What's the one thing that could make a difference today? We need a civil dialogue to discuss these very difficult issues and try to come up with reasonable solutions to them. 
and blaming uh, immigrants for crime or blaming immigrants for terrorism um, is not going to help us move the ball forward. I, I really think what we need now is some kind of effort to talk reasonably and thoughtfully uh, and, and to realize that these are complex questions that aren't subject to easy answers. And anybody who thinks they has an, have an easy answer to these questions, uh, I, I think they're just wrong because they're hard and um, they require a deliberate discussion, fair discussion, and also realizing that there are human consequences of our decisions. And, and to me, rather than any particular policy points, I think it's the it's the, the tone and tenor of the dialogue and discussion that's probably the most important. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the Matt Townsend Show. We, we appreciate your insights on this topic of immigration and uh, what Trump is doing or may not be doing at this time. And oh, if only we could get on the phone with him and, and share some of those insights with him. Dean uh, is a professor, or Kevin is a, a professor of public interest law and of Chicana studies at UC Davis. He has also held leadership positions in the Association of American Law Schools and is the recipient of an array of honors and awards. He is quoted regularly by the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and other national inter- international news outlets. He, uh, if you if you want to look him up, he blogs at Immigration Prof and is a regular contributor on Immigration on SCOTUS blog. So look him up, and we appreciate Kevin Johnson here on the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be sharing some more interesting stories with you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just finished speaking with uh, Kevin Johnson, who was talking to us about immigration. And now we have another interesting subject, because as you know, April 15th is rapidly approaching. But you may think that April 15th is tax day, but Terry says that is may is not the case, right? Not this year. Okay. Normally it is. <laughs> As this says, two things can be 100% you can be 100% sure of, and that's death and taxes. Right. Because you're never going to get rid of taxes, and you're always going to die. Yes. Uh, when you take your last <laughs> gas forever up in the air. So this is really negative. Um, so April 15th normally is tax day. Yeah. But this year, April 15th is a Saturday. Mm-hmm. So what they normally do is that, that gets when it lands on a weekend or a legal holiday, it gets post-shifted to the next Monday. That just so if it's on that Saturday, then tax day is that Monday, which would have been the seventeenth. So we get three extra days. Or you get the weekend to remember, oh yeah, taxes and you get you <laughs> jump in on that day and take care of it. Well, this year it's different because uh the sixteenth, which is that Sunday, is emancipation day. Federal holiday marking when President Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves in eighteen sixty two, or at least signed the document and they you know you can look at history for the rest of that. Uh, so when that day falls on the weekend, that holiday shifts to the Monday as a federal holiday. Ooh. Right? So the IRS has that day off because it's a federal holiday, so they're not working. So that because so that shifts tax day actually to the 18th, which is the Tuesday. Hallelujah. So it, sh- right. it should be on the 15th, but the 15th is Saturday. Right, mm-hmm. so that should be Monday, but because Sunday is the na- the federal holiday, then that shifts that holiday to Monday, pushing tax day to Tuesday. Wow! So keep in mind, tax day is April eighteenth. 
It's a deadline for filing your 1040s and such or to apply for an extension, which I hear a lot of people do. I'm not sure why you want to extend that chaos. Just get it taken <laughs> care of. But don't blow off doing your taxes. Uh, a tax attorney says relax, gather up all your information, and get it done. You put it off. It's just going to hang over your head for you know weeks or months or however long it takes. Just take care of the, your business. Get it taken care of. If you have to pay, just do it. Just bite the bullet. You I know, know people it, complain. Just take care of it. You know what would make this even better is if we – our employers gave us that Monday off to do taxes. Yeah, I don't know if it's that kind of holiday. <laughs> it's one of these banking holidays. It's weird. Uh, so take or heed Terry's advice and just get her done. Don't wait until the last minute. Just get, get it, it done. Get it done on the 14th. So you can enjoy the weekend. Yeah. Wow. All right. You've been reminded and you've been warned. Tax day is coming up. Get those taxes in. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue all the fun on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Tuesday morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We are once again Dr. Mattless, which is interesting because uh, sometimes people think that I sound like Dr. Matt. I'll take that as a compliment. Although sometimes he says some rather silly things. So today I'm kind of feeling like a fraud, which is interesting because in just a bit here we're going to be replaying an interview uh, that Dr. Matt conducted with Jamie Kurtz about feeling like a fraud. Hmm. So you won't want to miss that. And uh, Terry, there's nobody here quite like you, so you don't probably don't feel like a fraud today. Well, occasionally you do. Hmm. I mean – uh, what was the one? I, in many classes I took in college, we had this discussion about um, we're all role players, sure, in some extent, right? Because you could put into a situation you've never been there before, but maybe you saw somebody else do it, so you kind of do what they did because that's the only example you have, sure. And I can see where people feel like a fraud, especially when you're trying to move up, when you're trying to expand your experience, but you don't have any. Right. Right. And then people Fake it till you make it. And then people get into this sort of situation where they've never seen anyone do that before. And that's where they get lost because now they're in a situation they have no example to fall back on and yeah. Hmm. You end up in this like, you know, panic attack because you don't know how to public speaking is a big uh arena for this because people, sure. a lot of people don't get up in front of large groups and talk. Right and speak, you know. So it's it's a it's a it's interesting. That's why there's so many. If you re- go to a bookstore or look on Amazon or something, there's all these things about overcoming the fear of public speaking. It's yeah, because people don't do it. If you had that experience growing up, then it's not that big of a deal because you've done it or seen people do it. But if you've never been there, that's where that anxiety k- kicks in, and that's where you feel like a fraud because the whole, as you said, fake it till you make it. Right. Sometimes you just fake it the whole time. And speaking of public speaking, Jerry Seinfeld likes to point out that people's the number one uh, fear that people have is public speaking. The number two is death. Mm. So that means if they're at a funeral, they'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. Apparently, <laughs> if that line of reasoning follows. Yeah. Yeah. So we've all got an element of of uh, fakeness to us, but that's okay. 
Sometimes you just get by on, on what you can as far yeah. as that goes. But uh, interesting topic coming up here in just a bit. We'll also be talking about walk around things day. So that can be literal, I guess, uh, you know, or it can be beat around the bush day, I guess. Hmm. Today is also vitamin C day. So drink lots of OJ or just eat an orange. Or an apple. Wow, that is a crunchy orange. Man. Oh, well, oranges are going out of season, I believe. So that's probably the well, sound no. of. They're not? No. We, we, that, I was listening to a podcast the other day. Trump wants to end NAFTA, the North, North, North American Free Trade Agreement. Okay. One of the things that is a massive benefit of that is that we have fruits and vegetables year round. Yeah. Things don't go out of season. We have California, and when they're done with their growing cycle, then we have Mexico. Sure. And we get all these fresh fruits and vegetables all the time. If they end NAFTA, we'll have to go back to seasonal vegetables and seasonal fruit. So You'll walk into the store. There are no oranges. If that ends, then the next orange you eat may sound like this. Right. Oh. Well, there's always orange juice, and that's kind of a safe bet. Although if Dr. Ron Hager were here, he'd probably... Tell us not to do that. Uh, every time you think something's healthy, Ron Hager has to come in and blow it up. One of these days when he comes in, we've got to have, we've got to have some of those. Uh, what were the, those hot dogs that you were talking about yesterday? The slider hot dogs. Right. We need to have something With like the that. Fruit loops on them, yeah. And we just need to be chugging one of those trucker sized, uh, mm. those gallon sized uh, uh, cups of soda. Right. Oh, that would be a good. We should have done that on April Fools. <laughs> Although April Fool's was on a Saturday, I think. Right. Interesting stuff. Uh, Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country that we should be worried about or happy about? Yeah, or not. Democrats <laughs> have earned enough votes to successfully uh, filibuster President Trump's Supreme Court pick Neil Gorsuch. Two Democrats, one independent, still remain undecided about how they will vote. Four Democrats so far have said they will vote with Republicans, but the GOP will now remain short of the 60 votes needed to avoid the filibuster. Republican leaders indicate that they would change Senate rules on confirming Supreme Court justices if necessary. The ditching the filibuster and allowing final votes to be called with a simple majority, a change that would alter the way justices are confirmed in the future until the next route comes in and changes the rules back. I'm not sure how that works. Yeah. It's kind it just of this... seems like whatever party has the majority, they're just going to do whatever they need to do to make it benefit them. Yeah. It's just how that's going to work. That'll be government from now on. President Donald Trump is donating the first three months of his salary to the National Park Service. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer handed over an oversized check. Not one of them big, crazy, large ones, but, you know, kind of a smaller <laughs> one, but it was still pretty big. $78,333.33. Now, wait a minute. I thought Trump said he was going to be taking a $1 salary. The billionaire businessman turned president had promised to forego his presidential salary. By law, he must be paid. You can't work and not receive payment, so... He's going to donate the money. How disappointing would that be to get a check for $3 right. if it was three months of pay? Yeah. Wow. So he said that, but you can't do that. So he's going to donate yeah. his money. Uh, Interior Secretary Ryan uh, Zinke, who rode to work his first day of work in D.C. on a horse. Okay. Because he's the Interior Secretary, right? It was yeah. really, I'm like, where do you put a horse in D.C. after you get off the horse? <laughs> it's just kind of a fun thing. Um, but uh, So Zinke said he will use the money to help long-deferred maintenance projects on the nation's 25 battlefields. Okay. Like Gettysburg and places yeah. like that. He's going to help right. in the maintenance. 
Um, outstanding maintenance projects on those sites amount to $229 million. So $78,000 will fill in a couple potholes. Good job. <laughs> Have you ever been to any of those sites? No. Oh, me neither. Someday. Fill when in I, those potholes when, when I, you get yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, get the potholes filled so when I get there, we're good. Now, this story, stick with me. It okay. kind of wanders around. All right. So Blackwater is a private security firm that the U.S. government used in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Blackwater founder Eric Prince held a two-day meeting on an island in the Indian Ocean with a person close to the to Russian President Vladimir Putin in a bid to create a secret line of contact between the Kremlin and then-President-elect Donald Trump. This is all out of the Washington Post, by the way. Okay. The January 11th meeting was reportedly brokered by officials in the United Arab Emirates. I'm with you. So they're, they're the intermediaries. The United okay. Arab Emirates sets up the meeting. Trump uh, campaign at that time sends this CEO from Blackwater as their unofficial representative, and they meet with someone from Russia. Yeah. Right? So there's this meeting happening. And it's in this island in the Indian Ocean that I've never heard of. Okay. I had to Google Earth there and go, what? There's an island out there? Um so Prince, who's this Blackwater guy, is the founder of a private security firm Blackwater, which has been subject to numerous human rights, abuse allegations, civil suits, criminal cases, including one in 2007 when Blackwater employees killed Iraqi civilians. Right? So it might not be the best person to associate yourself with. So you're like, sure. Why this Blackwater guy? And he is also the brother of U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. What? Yeah. And a prominent donor to Trump, giving $250,000 to and to Trump and affiliated PACs during the election. So the guy, brother of the woman who became the education secretary, also someone who donated a lot of money because he's a billionaire in himself. Um, so that's how he's all involved in the Trump order. Okay. While Prince had no official role in the Trump transition, officials told the Post that he presented himself as an unofficial conduit for the Trump administration. Both White House and the Prince refute elements of the story. Wow. So there's this whole thing going on while they're doing the transition to sit down and have some sort of conversation with people representing representing Vladimir Putin without actually having a meeting with Vladimir Putin. I I totally understood that. Yeah. (laughs) As to what what happened? Were they talking about... Like international issues? Was this kind of uh, trying to figure out how we're going to deal together in a cooperative way? And then the other side, of course, is it's all about spying. I What I really want to know is how do you get rid of Blackwater when it shows up in your tub? I don't know. They haven't been able to get rid of the security firm either. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> and finally, anyone who's waited by the mailbox for an important letter or much-needed paycheck will want to be the first in line for a new free service from the U.S. Postal Service. It's rolling out widely mid-April, so in a, couple, in a week or so. Residential customers who sign up for informed delivery will receive a daily email with high-quality photo scans of their incoming envelopes, uh, the front of the envelope. So these cameras will take a picture as your, your mail comes by. They'll link it to you through the address and send you an email of what your mail looks like before it shows up at your house. Okay. All right. Why? I don't know. The emails display up to 10 images. If there's more than 10 on a given day, the uh, there'll be a link you can click so you can go see the rest, and that link hangs around for like seven days. Right? I want to see every angle of that letter. It's just the front. Just oh, okay. Boom, right the front as it goes under the scanner. That's not enough. After receiving tremendously positive feedback in a pilot test, Executive uh, Program Director Bob Dixon says the program's been uh, particularly appealing to people living with roommates since they're not always the first to receive their daily mail. 
Hmm. So stuff gets set aside, and all of a sudden it's lost. Sure. Uh, the Postal Service has opened sign up for informed delivery at their website. You can get some information. What they talked about was a guy was overseas, you know, traveling abroad, and he got the email, and it showed a jury summons. So mm-hmm. he, he texted his son to set the jury summons aside so it doesn't get lost in the big pile of, of mail that's yeah. showing up every day. So would you find this service useful at all to get photographs of your mail before you actually receive your mail? Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but mm. the, the United States Postal Service is not doing too well financially. They haven't been for quite a while, yeah. Right. So you would think that they would kind of take the, those resources and put them – to I'll better swear? use? I, I don't know. This could not be that expensive. It could be maybe they didn't buy new trucks one year. I don't know. I don't know what this is. So here's where I think the resources should go. Mm. We, we talk about this frequently on the show. There's an unnamed company that we'll just call Flamazon. Yes, gotcha. That promises two-day shipping, right. free shipping, mm-hmm. and yet us here in Utah – or I – I get I it. Us, I, I don't have a problem with this so at all, so me. don't let me in. It's just me. Ever since I moved to Utah, I have not been getting my mail within two days. But you moved here from where? California. And then before that? California, you get it in like 10 minutes. Before that? Seattle. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> That's like the home base, right? Right. But Home base, so, and then California probably has five or six distribution points. Utah, probably not too many. But okay, just so, see you. Go ahead. So, so I order it on Saturday. The package was supposed to get here Monday. Hmm. And I'm looking at the progress of the tracking, and there's no way it's getting here. And right. sure enough, I refresh the page, and it says, if it doesn't get here by Friday, look at your op- – like, then we'll talk about more options. Mm. So – and you look at the carrier, USPS. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, they're spending their money on taking pictures of mail that is not showing up on time. Okay. So I'm going to send a letter to Flamazon. Mm. And uh, Sue SPS, but is are you getting it before the four to five business days, which is or no, the six to eight, which is the free shipping version? Are you no, getting it the, before that? It says two day free shipping. No, no, I get that, but are you getting it before the other options you can pick? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Because in my mind, it's like, yeah, you're paying for that, but if you, if it's not me bumping up against the threshold of priority or whatever the free shipping is, then it might be a good service for you. You just need to be patient for another day because whatever doohickey you order, is it that important you need it right now? No, but if we're paying $100 a year to not use, but we don't use Amazon or Flamazon streaming, we don't really watch anything there. Why not? I was watching what reruns of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe over the weekend. They were right there. You watch the cartoons. So we don't watch anything yeah. on Flamazon streaming. Just saying, there's all kinds of stuff on there. <laughs> so we're doing it for the two-day shipping, yeah. and we're not getting it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, I think the money should not be spent on photos and just get it there sooner. Anyway, speaking of mail, someone – did you know someone used a cement pig to try to break into a UPS store? That's what I read. The pig was not harmed, though. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. My wife really likes pigs. Cement she pigs? thinks they're cute. Meh. I guess. Cement that movie pigs. Babe was kind of cute, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parts of a cement pig planter went airborne early Sunday morning when someone tried to break into a Virginia UPS store. 
While the glass was broken, police said the decorative item did not quite make it all the way through the window. In fact, it appears the pig did not suffer any damage. The UPS store owner fixed the back door Monday afternoon. So this has a happy ending. The pig lives. What's in a UPS store that you'd break in for? Ooh. Because by the end of every day, all the packages are gone. I bet you they take all the money out and take it to the bank like most companies do. So the right. place doesn't have money. So you're left with like boxes and like packaging material and shipping. I mean. There is that local art that you can get. Wow. All right. There must have been something in there they thought. Plus, have you seen their greeting cards? No. I haven't been to the UPS store in a while. <laughs> Apparently you have. You, yeah. I can't remember the last time I had to put something in an envelope. And put it in the mail. So that's you, interesting. You think you'd pick a better store if you're going to commit a crime as such? Think big. Well, they did. A, they thought pig, a, but they didn't a think big. cement pig planter as they heft it through the door. Well, as it says here, there was a happy ending because the pig lives mm. even thing. though it, it wasn't really living before. No, but, you know, you don't want it broken. Oh, Yeah. You don't want a broken cement pig planter. You can't. You don't come across cement pigs, cement pig planters all that often. We actually, in our Seattle home, we had a pig water can that uh, was really quite cute. I think maybe I'm starting to agree with my wife. Pigs are cute. I said it. Wow. As Matt would say, what is this world coming to? Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back... As I teased earlier, we're going to be replaying an interview that Dr. Matt had with Dr. Jamie Kurtz and talking about feeling like a fraud. That'll be an interesting interview when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever walked into a room and despite all your accomplishments and your skills, immediately you felt like everyone else in the room was smarter, more talented, more experienced than you? Well, you're not alone, friends. Many of us have a tendency to feel like a fraud around others because it's easy to judge others' competence on their outward achievements. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Jamie Kurtz, professor of psychology at James Madison University in in, uh, Virginia. And rejoins us today to discuss the imposter syndrome, this uh, feeling of inadequacy and where it comes from. Dr. Jamie Kurtz, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much. It's nice to be back. Great to have you. And uh, just for anybody that's keeping that are keeping notes, you write a blog called Happy Trails on PsychologyToday.com, and uh, this this um, this this concept of imposter syndrome. That's where it came up, and I first saw it. Talk to us about that. What is imposter syndrome? Sure, um, it's a it's a feeling of inadequacy that even despite some really successful achievements, really impressive things that you might have done, you feel like a fake. You feel like you just got lucky. You worry that you might be found out Mm. and revealed to uh, be a fraud of some kind. And it can really really diminish uh, the sense of pride and accomplishment that 
should be should be all of ours when we achieve our goals. I mean, um, poet laureate Maya Angelou. I remember her saying that very thing once that every time she releases a new book, she she has this terror come over herself that everyone's going to find out she's a fraud. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. People who are, in fact, some of the most high achieving people are the most susceptible to this. Yeah. And what what is it? And it really would, like you said, it would disintegrate my confidence in a way. It would make it so mm-hmm. even if I am achieving something, it's not it's never going to be perceived as good enough. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Where 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 do we get this from? Where is this coming from? Sure. Um, you know, it's hard to pin it to any one source, but for some of us, you know, we really are perfectionists and we always do think we can do it better. We can do it better. We can do it better. We could have tried harder. We could have put more time into it. So some of it just comes from having really, really high standards for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But but other people have traced it to things that have happened in our childhood. So, you know, being labeled a certain way, being labeled as the more sensitive child or the less smart child or the athletic child. And those labels kind of stick with you. And even as you start achieving maybe in school or in your career, it's hard to, you know, rid yourself of that identity that's been part of your life Hmm. for years. Well, Um, especially, I guess you picked up that label so young Mm -hmm. that, yeah, as long as you're not, I guess, being perfect in these areas or whatever, Mm -hmm. you're never going to add up. Yeah, and it can come from family messages in a different way, too, if you're always told you're so brilliant, you're so smart, you're, you're just such a genius, and then... Things get harder as school gets more complicated or work life gets more complicated. And suddenly you have to start working really hard to pull your weight or to do as well as you used to. You can really start to doubt yourself. Hmm. Think, oh, wow, maybe maybe I'm not so smart after all. Well, I, I can't let anybody know. I have to keep up this illusion. And that can also contribute to feeling like a fraud. It's so interesting because, I mean, I think everybody has felt some version of this. Well, maybe not. I mean, there's some I always talk to my kids about the power of wouldn't you just love to be the guy that just was clueless enough to not know to worry about any of this. But then I think, oh, you'd miss out on so many other cues and nuances. Um, But in the end, too, it would make it so you would almost see everybody else in the room like your competitor. Mm -hmm. And then then I'm not going to maybe interact the way I might want to. I might not also be able to learn. Right. You might not learn. You might not respond to criticism or feedback all that well, right? Like, yeah. oh, everyone else has the problem. I don't, I'm fine. So kind of defensiveness. Is, is this, what, how common is this uh, as far as something that – is it something we go in and we get treatment for? Do we go to a therapist to get help? I think if it gets crippling enough, yeah, I think that some cognitive behavioral therapy could help people – catch themselves when they start to go down that dark road in their mind and give them new ways to interpret situations, new ways to think about it. So, yeah, I do think that if it's, you know, if it's, if it's troubling enough to somebody, it's worth going to seek out help. Mm. How do we, um, how do we handle it? So if all of a sudden I, I, I feel like I'm a fraud and yet I want mm-hmm. to be confident, is there, how do I go about bridging the gap? Sure. There are a couple things you can do. I mean, in the moment, you, I don't know if you know about all that research on power posing, mm-hmm. where you kind of stand like Wonder Woman. Um, yeah. That's been shown to, within you know a couple of minutes, just give people a boost of confidence. 
that might be able to help them through, you know, that moment that they're that they're in that uh, right then and there. Over the long term, I think, I mean, in my own experience, just talking about it with people and knowing that you're not alone is is hugely powerful. Um, I remember a time in graduate school, you know, I had gotten to this very competitive graduate program and my cohort, my classmates were all from Ivy League schools. So yeah. I was from this little tiny state school in Pennsylvania that nobody had heard of. And then, you know, I'm going to school with somebody from Harvard and Yale and and plus graduate school is just really complicated and confusing. Like, what are we supposed to be doing right now? We right. don't really understand. Um, and I felt very fraudulent. I'm like, was there a mistake? How did I get in here? Is there a paperwork problem or something? <laughs> yeah. And one day, one night we were all out at a bar and somebody said, you know, I really feel like I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And we all said, me too, me too, <laughs> me too. <laughs> and it really made me realize that we all feel this way, but when we're in this culture where we feel like we have to be spectacular all the time, it's, it can be really hard to admit it. Yeah, and sometimes I guess just admit, me admitting it makes it so it doesn't have to have a hold on me. Now it's kind of out there. I'm just mm-hmm. being real. Yeah, it's freeing. And then others join in, and you're like, holy cow, we all think the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the nice upside to that is it's also kind of a bonding experience. Like I felt close to those people after yeah. we all kind of were letting ourselves be real. Oh, it's powerful. I mean, and, and I mm-hmm. guess let, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Jamie Kurtz about uh, this this imposter syndrome, this this idea that we all have, we feel, you know, at certain times where we're not good enough, we're not cut out to do what we're doing. Sometimes we feel like we're a fake, and she's uh, walking us through some tools we can use to uh, to maybe get real and lose the lose the feeling of imposter that you actually do belong, that you are confident and able and capable. Interesting stuff, folks. Learning what we can. We'll take a break. Come back uh, more with Dr. Jamie Kurtz. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Matt here. Today we're talking about imposter syndrome. And uh, on the line with us is Dr. Jamie Kurtz. Um, She is a psychology professor at James Madison University in Virginia and is discussing this imposter syndrome where we just don't feel like we cut it. And we feel like sometimes we're just a fake, we're a fraud. And if these people push on me long enough, I'm going to come apart and they'll see how really weak I am. Uh, Jamie, welcome back again to the show. Thank you. You talk about uh, this concept too of um, pluralistic ignorance. What what yeah. is that? <laughs> um, I think we all experience it from time to time, but it's hard to explain. Um, it's a social psychology concept where people think they're conforming to what everybody else is doing. But nobody actually feels comfortable with what they're doing. So um, a really common example is drinking on college campuses. So there's this norm that binge drinking is sort of the thing to do. 
And so people can form to that to fit in. But when you actually sit down and talk with each individual person, they all say, well, I don't actually feel that comfortable doing it. I don't even like it that much, but I do it because everyone else is doing it. Hmm. So the end, the end consequence is like everyone is doing this thing that they think everyone else wants, that everyone else likes, but nobody likes it. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so it's been um, tied to things like hooking up on college campuses, yeah, drinking, um, I'm currently doing some research on conforming to like happiness norms where we feel like we all need to be so happy all the time because that's an aspect of, of life in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels not okay then to not be happy all the time. But anyway, um, I think it also can be something that maintains this, this imposter syndrome. Everyone is faking it. Everyone is putting on this front that, oh, I have it together. I don't have any self-doubt. So we feel very alone. Interesting. But yeah, but the fact is everybody probably or most people anyway probably have some questions about their abilities from time to time. Yeah. Well, which is why the antidote would be sharing it. So if if you exactly. if everyone would just open up and be real and honest about what they're experiencing, then everyone would say, "Yeah, binge drinking is stupid." And yeah. we might <laughs> we might fix things that that it's and wow, how interesting is that? Because you are a fraud, um, almost morally in your head, because you you are doing something you don't believe in doing. Mm-hmm. So that then might perpetuate the why you're an imposter. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Exactly. So it takes a couple of really brave vocal people who will put themselves out there and and just say, you know, I don't like this, or this doesn't this isn't who I really am. But then that could get you killed, we think. We think that'll really get us ostracized, I guess, because we won't then belong to the the bigger group. We won't belong to the in people, except most of the in people don't want to belong either. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, the need to fit in, to be liked, is so powerful. Hmm. How how do you – what are some other ways we could present ourselves – in more truthful ways, and, and you know what I mean, and and be more aligned to our value system. Hmm. Um, I think you know having a sense of humor can be a pretty powerful thing, not in a terribly self-deprecating way, like putting down our successes and making fun of ourselves, but just sort of being light, being casual, um, not taking ourselves too seriously. Yeah, I mean. If, because I've found sometimes humor can bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. Like, are we all really just sitting around here binge drinking? I mean, <laughs> it, look at doesn't Jimmy look great as he's upside down in a bathtub? <laughs> right. I, I mean, all yeah, of a sudden, it, it might be an easier way to bring it out. Mm-hmm. Right, as opposed to sounding kind of self righteous, exactly. pious, or judgmental, just kind of. Making a joke about it can be a nice segue into a a really meaningful discussion. I guess part of it, too, is we have to know what our strengths are, right? I need to know what my virtues, my strengths, my values, my beliefs really are. Um, And any ideas on how we can go in and and get a better look at those? Yeah. um, So, gosh, I mean, in school, we get all kinds of evaluations, grades, and, and assessments from our professors that we can look at. And, you know, really trying to take it objectively and not just saying, oh, well, I got lucky on that one mm-hmm. or, you know, um, or it was an easy test. Just sort of taking credit for it for what it is in the workplace. Also, when you get a positive evaluation, um, that can feel really great. But we can also just sort of chalk it up to, oh, well, I guess I was in the right place at the right time or my team really did most of the work. 
Um, so just kind of looking at our successes objectively and owning them. Um, if we have some, if this is really hard, you know, sharing them with somebody that we trust, somebody who's really on our side and positive, like a, a good friend or a partner, and letting, letting us hear their reaction. They mm. might be able to see it more clearly and without all of the negative judgment that we ourselves might put on top of it. Yeah. So sharing our successes with, with loved ones. Um, and we have, it's funny because we, we like to be successful. We're competitive in our culture, but we also have this norm of humility where most of us don't like to talk ourselves up that much. Um, or we couch it in the, in the humble brag, right? We, yeah. we kind of put it, put ourselves down while we're also subtly bragging about it. Yeah. So there might be a time and a place to put humility aside for a minute and just kind of own our accomplishments. Yeah, true. And just, and, just you know, admit it. I mean, you're mm-hmm. good. You're not just yeah. – you don't just have your errors, your weaknesses. You have strengths and admit where you're strong. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't have to put it on a T-shirt. You don't have to make right. a bumper sticker out of it. Well, you don't have to put it on Facebook. That's right. Exactly. You don't even have to put it on social media. Well, uh, Dr. Jamie Kurtz, we appreciate you. This is great insight uh, into this imposter syndrome. And uh, I, I just I, – I can't recommend more getting on Psychology Today – Look up her uh, her blog, Happy Trails. Just great information. Thanks again, Jamie. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You bet. Keep up the great work. Ah, interesting stuff. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it it doesn't necessarily go away. But if you don't share it, if you don't share some of your shame or some of that feeling that you have of being an imposter with others. You have to carry the secret with you. But by sharing it, others in the room are going to be like, oh, I feel the same way. There's, and it releases you from that from that bondage. Hey, uh, we, we've put together some um, a great team here at BYU. And, you know, we, we wanted to, to focus on a lot of different stories. And sometimes we just don't always have the time to do that. But we have a producer um, that's that's working with us now that's talking and bringing up some really interesting ideas. Her name is Madeline Dresden, not Madeline, not Maddie, Madeline Dresden. And it kind of got into this idea of, you know, names. Why do we name people or, or name our baby this name or that name? And uh, so think about it. Think about the most popular baby names in the country right now. New lists come out every year in which names like Sophia, Ava, Liam, and Asher score consistently in the top five. But what about the kids who are given an unpopular name or even a difficult-to-pronounce name? What is it like to never see your name on a souvenir keychain at the store or on a Coke bottle or Coke can? Who better to weigh in on this than our new producer uh, on the Life Lessons segment, Madeline Dresden, who has a lot of experience with brandishing a unique name. Madeline has uh, set out uh, to answer this age-old question, what's in a name? I have a difficult name, Madeline, not Madeline, Madeline, Marilyn, Natalie, or Madison. It's Madeline with three E's. That's the usual long introduction that I give to every new person I meet, especially if we're in a noisy room where the pronunciation of my name is difficult to hear. My name and I have a love-hate relationship, and I think you can probably guess why. But whenever I talk about changing my name to make my life easier, I'm met with intense resistance. But your name is so pretty, my friends say. I mean, so are jellyfish, but that doesn't mean that I have to keep one if it's bothering me. A name isn't just a pretty ribbon that other people get to admire on you. 
Names shouldn't have to come with an apology or a disclaimer. They shouldn't be a burden. A name should feel like home. But I've never been comfortable with my name, probably because it never sat comfortably with anyone else either. Interesting names are fun. I get that. But I think it's important for name givers to remember that they are not the ones who will be living with the name they're giving, and chances are the child they named might not think that extra vowels or strange spellings are worth all the hassle, and they may not feel as cool as they're told their name is. Some researchers are even saying that the harder it is to pronounce a person's name, the less likable they will appear to coworkers. It seems that unwieldy names rarely serve their masters well. But if you must give your child a unique name, then there are a few ways to compromise. First off, let your kids go by a nickname if they want to. I wasn't allowed to truncate my name, which meant that I had to resign myself to clarifying it for the rest of my life. I'll admit it made me a shy kid. Meeting new people wasn't worth the hassle, not just because it was so much work to keep correcting people, but because they would feel burdened too. No one wants to offend me by messing up my name or by forgetting it entirely. It's an uncomfortable situation for everybody. But sometimes unique names are given for a reason. I said earlier that I have a love-hate relationship with my name. The thing that I do like about it is its significance to my family. Magdalena is a family name. Mine is the French form. I like the significance and the history behind my roots, but I just wish that I felt more like I owned my name and not the other way around. I want to give my kids special names too. I really do. I favor biblical names for boys like Paul or Michael, and proper British names like Kate or Emma. Not complicated, easy to pronounce, easy to remember. But I don't want my kids to feel unoriginal, so my compromise is to give them special middle names. Then it can be like a secret uniqueness for them to share, hide, or even go by. It's up to them. I want them to feel like their names are their own. Either as something to live up to, or as something to glorify. After all, what's in a name? If my kids feel, as Romeo and Juliet did, that their problematic names are their enemies, keeping them from relationships that they'd otherwise have, even if the name I gave them was one that I loved, I wouldn't let my ego get in the way of their happiness. For a happy child by any other name would still be as sweet. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you've got kids, it's uh, probably about that time of year that they're going to go to prom. And uh, <laughs> Caitlin Thomas is here with us. She's giving me a funny look. Um, you know, Caitlin, did you when you went to high school, did you go to all of the proms that you were eligible to go to? Yeah, I did. I went to a couple. I went to all the proms at my school. I went to a couple at other schools. So popular. No. So, but you know, I I just you know you make friends and you go and it's it's fun. But there's this thing that people are calling promposals, and now has a word. Promposal. There's an actual term for it now. And I'm just laughing. I just have to talk about this because it is the season. Right, tis the season to, to, there's a lot of engagements happening around right Mm -hmm. now, so they can have a summer wedding, Mm -hmm. but it's also tis the season for these promposals, which seemingly look the same from the outside. Really? It's so, it's interesting. I just have, I just have to talk about this. Okay. Because I just don't understand why we do it. Have you ever been the beneficiary of a, or have you been on the receiving end of a promposal? Yeah. 
Okay. Well, every time I got, every time I went to a prom, like the way I got asked was very elaborate. Like the one time <laughs> that I can remember, it was my favorite. My junior year, I was in the middle of eating lunch in the cafeteria, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone's throwing a blindfold over my head, and I just get picked up and like taken out of the cafeteria, and I. They put me down and they Creepy. take the blindfold off. I know, and I'm in the auditorium of the high school, and it's just, it's just black. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, spotlight comes on, and there he is sitting with a guitar, and he, the kid just starts singing the song that he'd written about taking me to prom. And then three more spotlights. He's got little background dancers. Like it was awesome. But he wrote a whole song about taking me to prom. Okay. And uh, I just remember thinking, like, this was so cute. And at the time, of course, it was like, ah, cool. But now I'm looking at it, I'm like, why do we do this? Do you know how expensive and like, timely <laughs> these things are? Why are teenagers doing this for prom? How much were your prom tickets? Um, Probably 50 normally. Whoa. But for both of them? Mine were 100. Oh, gross. For both. Wow. Yeah. Well, somebody went to a high-class high school. No. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. I really didn't. <laughs> But it's just interesting. I mean, and you said, well, I'm going to have you share your story in a minute. You have this elaborate one. But I, so I looked up this article that talked about why we do this. Like, it, it makes a little more sense when you think about when you're asking someone to marry you to do this elaborate thing. But, like, now you start putting the pressure on teenagers to have the perfect promposal. Otherwise, the girl might not want to go. Right. It's, it becomes a social comparison thing now all of a sudden. Mm. And... um. This lady that wrote this article said that our generation loves doing things bigger and better. Um, and prom is one event where you really get to show off. So it's kind of like, you know how the men like love to plan these elaborate things for someone they want to marry? and But then when they're younger, it's it's still there. That culture's still ingrained to do something bigger and better. And teenage exhibitionism and senseless romantic romantics are, in fact, probably as old as time. Yeah. So it's just interesting. You, the sad part is the date is usually not as exciting as the proposal to the date. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, and here in Utah, I don't know about some of the other states, but I, I mean, I only went to prom in Utah, but it's you have this elaborate promposal and then you got to find a funny way to answer back. And then the boy has to plan with a day date. So you spend all morning at some date and then you drop the girl off, she gets ready, and then you pick her back up again for dinner and the dance. Like I've just, never heard of this. It lasts all day long. It's not oh. just like it's it's an all day thing. So not only do you have to plan a dinner and the dance, but you have to also plan this day date. What if you don't really like the person? Exactly. Unfortunate. Oh. So it's just interesting how much time and effort goes into these, you know, school dances. Like how much do they actually mean? I don't know. I mean it's fun and it is a good way for boys and girls, you know, to learn how to date and how to ask and how to do all that stuff. It's just crazy to me to see how big some of these promposals are getting. So at least, and hopefully people aren't doing this, but, uh, you know, at least people aren't coming up with elaborate ways to say no. I'm not going to go to the oh dance my gosh. with you. No kidding. Well, I was thinking my older sister um, got asked to prom. This was one of the favorite ways I remember him doing because it just stuck in my mind. So he had borrowed my sister's copy of Hot Rod. They were coworkers, and so he'd want to watch it. I love that it. movie. Yeah, so he borrowed it, and then he gave it back. And the problem was is it took her a minute to rewatch the movie again. So he was waiting for this. Anyway, so we go to oh, – finally he, he texted me, and he was like, hey, I really need you to get your sister to watch Hot Rod. And I was like, what? <laughs> okay, so I sat her down, and I was like, let's watch Hot Rod. So we open it, and it's not the Hot Rod disc in the case. It's a blank CD, and so we put it in the DVD player, and he has filmed himself doing some of the stunts that Hot Rod does in the movie. <laughs> you know, see where he rolls down the hill, wow. and that's him, and then he rolls down the hill, and he stands up, and he's like, because, you know, Hot Rod has his introduction, he's like, hey, I'm so-and-so, and I want you to go to prom with me, and then it just cuts. 
So he like made this whole movie wow. for my sister. It was really funny. That was a very uh, violent scene in the film. He just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. And he tried to do some of the other. Tr- anyways, it was just funny. But like, you know, at the time we didn't all have smartphones that had iMovie so that you could easily put that together. Like that took yeah. work. He had to film it on his camera. Someone had to help him. He had to go in and cut it. Burn it onto a CD. That is clever. So at the time, it would have taken a lot of work. And I just remember thinking, that was so awesome. Yeah. So you ready for mine? I'm ready. Okay. So there was this girl that I really liked all throughout high school and even in junior high. Oh. And we had kind of liked each other off and on. And I wanted to come up with a very grand way to have a promposal too. So I needed time to plan it. So I had a friend ask her to prom just so that I could kind of put her on reserve, even though he he already had a date to prom. And <laughs> so she was on reserve so I could move forward with my plans. But I didn't want to get in trouble. I wanted to do something huge in front of the whole school, but I didn't want to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I went and I was part of the student body leadership. I went to the vice principal and I said, Spirit Week is coming up. We want to have the band perform at lunch in front of the, you know, in the quad. And they thought, they said, oh, that's a great idea. So I got permission. I went to some of my friends in band and I said, I'm going to sing to this girl. I want you guys to learn these parts. And in exchange for that, I'm going to treat you guys to a bunch of tacos from Del Taco. Oh, genius. Taco Tuesday. I started rehearsing with them and they're playing up up on the second floor uh, overseeing the quad and... This girl is there, and everybody knows that something is happening, but she doesn't know. And so they just play a couple of songs so that she doesn't get suspicious. And then right before they play the song that I'm going to sing, the friend that put her on reserve for me turned to her and said, Oh, by the way, uh, so-and-so said that they could go with me, so I'm going to go with them instead. So for just a few seconds, she was really upset. And then the music started playing and somebody starts singing and I walk out and I I try to find her in the audience so that I can point to her. And apparently I pointed right at her even though I was blindly pointing. (laughs) So I worked my way down the stairs and I worked my way over to her and it couldn't have worked out more perfectly. The audience parted Parted right to her. They knew exactly (laughs) who I was going for. And uh, so I got her on mic saying yes, and the the place went nuts. Oh, my gosh. That's so elaborate, but, yeah. like, sweet. Mm-hmm. See, there's a lot of time and effort to friends into these. I mean, Facebook friends. You can't yeah, – I mean, we're yeah, both that's, married. That's so. what it means. But, like, I think it's good because it does give – and there are girls' choice dances as well, but specifically when it comes to prom, I think it's good for, you know, guys to put some thought. It It, it kind of forces them to, you know – put some thought into another person as a teenage boy and think about a girl in a way that she would like to be asked. And I think it's good for them. But I also don't think it's good to start saying, oh, well, your prom proposal is better than mine. Like, my date's lame because he didn't do this. Like, not all guys have elaborate amounts of money or means and time. But right. if, they're, if they're going out of their way to do something thoughtful, like, I think that's all that matters. And so I hope that teenage boys specifically remember that. Like, don't feel pressure yeah. to do something like, yours was thoughtful. It was pretty elaborate. Not, maybe yours won't be like that, but just find something that's sweet. Do you think there are girls out there, and uh, we've only got a minute left, but do you think there are girls out there that secretly are okay with just the casual, hey, you want to go to the dance? Probably. 
Just bring flowers. Because we us, we don't know. The guys don't know. I we, don't know. Ask your mom. We hear <laughs> girls say, oh, yeah, that's fine, whatever. But, you know, a lot of girls then secretly are upset when you don't, when you don't do go it. all out. Just think of something short and sweet. Make it thoughtful. That's what they call me. In high, that's what they called me in high school, short and sweet. Anyway, Caitlin Thomas, <laughs> you nailed it again. Right. And uh, <laughs> we'll Happy talk to you again on Thursday. Season. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, you're still single, so it's not too late for you to have another promposal. Not to the prom, but, you know. I don't want to go to prom. All right. I guess that would be a little weird. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Tuesday morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Once again, Dr. Mattless, but that's okay because he will return. He found out that we are releasing information about him each and every day until he does return. So I think tomorrow we'll uh, move on to bank account numbers. And then maybe after that, Social Security. We've already given out his room number at the Quality Inn, St. George Boulevard. Actually, I don't think he's staying at the Quality Inn. I think he owns his own place in St. George. He might be uncomfortable knowing that we're giving out all this information about him, but, uh, you know, he's uh, he's a very giving person. Anyway, <laughs> my name is Jeff Simpson, and I'll be covering for Dr. Matt in case uh, you were wondering, who's this guy that kind of sounds like Dr. Matt? Joking about Dr. Matt. Today, we celebrate Walk Around Things Day. There are so many options from the lighthearted method of simply walking around things, where you may circle a fire hydrant a couple of times for fun on the walk to work, to the more exercise-conscious method of walking around the park you usually walk through as a shortcut. This day reminds us that sometimes you have to pick your battles, and sometimes the best way to deal with a situation is by simply not dealing with it at all. Sounds like a good way to do it. It's also Vitamin C Day. People from all over the world have long been aware of the extensive health benefits of consuming foods high in vitamin C, as well as the risks associated with not consuming enough of it, one of which is scurvy, as Terry mentioned earlier, something you are likely to get if you're ever on a pirate ship. It was not until the late 19th century that scurvy was described in detail by British physician Sir Thomas Barlow that people began to understand just how much this substance can do for our health. So, if you want some vitamin C, go pick up some orange juice or take a bite into an orange, which, uh, you know, if Trump gets rid of the, uh, oh, what was the acronym for it again, Terry? NAFTA. NAFTA. The NAFTA agreement. We may have to go back to seasonal fruits and vegetables instead of year-round. So wait, what's in season right now? We've got, I think mangoes are kind of in season. I don't even know. I just go to the store and buy what I want. I want a watermelon, it's there. I'm always scared of the watermelons and the strawberries that always seem to be in season. Why's that? 
Just because uh, they shouldn't be in season. Okay. Cool. It seems like they shouldn't be in season. The watermelons especially, that's a great point. Yeah. I, was, I, I actually looked over there just, it was this weekend, and I went, there's watermelons. Do you ever buy those yeah. mini watermelons? Yeah, that's what it was. It was like a little mini basketball watermelon. I'm like, huh, that's a... Uh, it seems wrong. Yeah. Is that is that a full-size watermelon that's out of season so it doesn't quite grow correctly? Is that what that is? Or is it they grow it specifically as a mini watermelon? Yeah, well, you know how they they now have smaller portions of soda pop and smaller portions of candy bars. So I think they breed them small. I think you're right, Terry. I'm just, you know, as long as they can keep those seeds out of there, I'm pleased as punch. Yeah, who cares what size they are as long as there's just... Whoa. As long as there's no seeds. Reed is, we'll talking, Reed is talking from a creaky pirate ship right now, and he has scurvy. There's some kind of spirit in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep the seeds out, and we're good. Yeah. What? Okay, what else is in season? Do you know, Reed? I mean, we bought a cantaloupe recently, but the thing is, like Terry said, who actually knows what's in season? When? True. You know, like, the cantaloupe was great, but, you know... I I'm sure to the average consumer, if it's in the store, it's in season because it's in store. Yeah, it's season all year round. That's interesting. You know, I have a confession to make. I have never in my life purchased a cantaloupe that I can think of. Oh, you should. They're great. I – well, this is coming from the man with scurvy. So, <laughs> Terry, are you a cantaloupe fan? It's all right. It's all right? Yeah. It's better than honeydew. Absolutely. Honeydew is okay, but seriously, if there's some cantaloupe, I'll go there. See, you know, reviews don't come much better than that from Terry South. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I'm not going to. Not like, a fan. If, if there's cantaloupe on, the, on a, like a stand on the side of the road, I'm not going to stop. I'll point it out and go, hey, look, cantaloupe, and keep driving. But I'm not going to stop and pick some up. See, now that is a segment for Caitlin Thomas right there. Fruits. That are worth stopping on the side of the road for. There you go. Beef jerky. Beef jerky. There's a fruit. Wow. What about those pine nuts that they have around Christmas time? Nope. No? There's too much of it. I don't even know what a pine nut looks or tastes like. Hmm. I don't know either. Anyway, let's move on from all this nuttiness and uh, horrible puns and uh, head over to... Terry South, who's going to tell us what's going on around the rest of the country. The White House discovered last month that President Obama's National Security Advisor Susan Rice made dozens of requests to, quote, unmask Trump transition officials and incidental collection of their communications with electronically monitored foreign officials. Masking is the process the intelligence community uses to protect the identities of American citizens caught up in the surveillance of foreign individuals. The standard for unmasking is that the information must have some foreign intelligence value which is such a broad definition that it means likely that Rice's requests were probably legit. This does not prove that Trump's claims of wiretapping on Trump Tower, though, as he claimed this morning on Twitter. Are you sure? I'm just reporting what okay. I've been reading this All morning. Because right. it's not wiretapping. They were listening to somebody else, and somebody called them, and that's where they got a hold of the communication. Oh, we didn't say wiretapping. Those are your words. No, you said wiretapping. I said it in, 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 on a... <laughs> 
couple Wrong. weeks ago. Right. In 2013, Carter Page, an energy consultant and former campaign advisor to Donald Trump, was targeted for recruitment by Russian spies. This according to a report in BuzzFeed News. Uh, Page first met the Russian intelligence operative working at the uh, at the time for a uh, at Moscow's UN office in New York in January 23 as an inter- at an energy conference in January 2015 after federal investigators broke up a Russian spy ring looking for details on how to develop alternative energy the spy and two other Russians were charged by the US government for acting as unregistered agents of a foreign government really yeah so from January to June of 2013 Page met with spies several times, corresponded with him via email, and provided documents about the energy business to him. Uh, but he later tells BuzzFeed that uh, he never gave the spy any sensitive information about the material. The importance of all this was the first part where he was a former campaign advisor to Donald Trump. Hmm. And you have a guy that gets caught up in the spy ring that was notable in the, in the news at the time because the FBI broke up. A Russian spy ring operating in New York. Interesting. And now this Carter Page guy who the Trump campaign let go, I think before they actually took office, is now reportedly all caught up in this. Do you think these are legitimate concerns or do you think it's like what Sean Spicer said where like, oh, if you, if we say that he put Russian salad dressing on his yeah. salad, then you guys freak out about it? I don't know. But for some reason, there's a lot of Trump People connected to the Trump or the Trump administration that are hanging out with a lot of Russian people that are connected to Russia, spies, and Vladimir Putin. Mm. I don't know if the – some of them – I mean there was one with uh, Attorney General uh, Sessions where he went to a party and he shook a guy's hand. And that was one of the events that were, you talk to Russian spies. And, well, he shook a guy's <laughs> hand at a party and walked on. He didn't like stop, talk, and like hand over the, you know, the codes or something. He's a communist. Right. So some of this gets inflated, but this one's interesting because he's admitting to the whole thing. The FBI, the, the, the three Russians that were, were kicked out of the country, and he gave them documents. He said they weren't sensitive, but he supplied them with information. This is kind of like when Donald Trump was running for president and somebody said, back in 1970-something, you said this, and he just – he doesn't he doesn't really admit to it. He'll just say like, I probably said that. Yeah. <laughs> he just – he has a, a sense of not letting whatever the negative thing is weigh him down. He just keeps moving. I've never – And, and every other politician stops – they they have a heart-filled, tearful apology, and Trump just goes, eh, and keeps moving. And the, and the rest of, of like D.C., all that group of people are like, wait a second, you're supposed to do this other thing, not just ignore it and keep moving. And so yeah. that's kind of how he's caught, kept them off balance, I guess. He is the most talented person in just brushing things off. I've never seen somebody with such a great ability in those regards. Right. Everyone else gets hung up on it. Yeah. Uh, a sixth person has died after storms battered the south from Sunday into Monday, and a man in his mid-60s was killed in his mobile home in South Carolina after uh, his home was struck by an unconfirmed tornado, and the home flipped several times. Southeast is set for more severe weather after uh, tornadoes flooding killed, uh, as we said, three more people. Over 10 million people in the severe weather threat zone through Monday evening. And that's continued this morning. Tornado watches are in effect from the Florida Panhandle to southern North Carolina. There have been at least 16 reported tornadoes from Texas to Georgia since Sunday. It's a crazy storm system tearing up the south there. Um, AOL and Yahoo will merge their services into a company called Oath. O-A-T-H. AOL still a thing? 
Well, they were they were purchased by Verizon a couple years ago, I think. Okay. And then Yahoo and Verizon are trying to finish their purchase, right? And then Verizon wants to take both of those entities and put them together and call it Oath. 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 Business hmm. Insider reports this on Monday. The two former internet giants are util- are uniting under Verizon, which purchased AOL in 2015, expected to finish purchasing Verizon this month. Or purchase, or Verizon expect, expected to finish the purchase of Yahoo this month. AOL spokesperson told Business Insider that the company would be launching in summer 2017. It's unclear which services will be combined under the Oath name and whether Yahoo will continue to exist in any meaningful sense. And in January, Yahoo announced that it would change part of their company to Altaba, A-L-T-A-B-A. Oh, yeah, it's the character from Wicked. Was it? Oh, that's Alphaba. Sorry. That's different. So Altaba. So Yahoo is splitting. It's very confusing, but out of all the Yahoo mess and with AOL, now we're getting Altaba and Oath. So... I just want to point out that when I said Wicked, you gave me a very blank stare. Mike, why are you watching and <laughs> referencing Wicked? <laughs> I've seen it once. Right. Um, and finally, a teenager from Kentucky punched a shark as it bit her while she was swimming in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Florida, authorities said. Caitlin Taylor, 17, from Louisville, Kentucky, sustained six puncture wounds from the shark bite. She was able to fend off the shark. Her mother says that her daughter was in Florida with her high school softball team during her school's spring break. When the incident took place, they, witnesses said that a five-foot-long shark bit her as she was by, in waist-deep water Sunday afternoon, just playing around the ocean. See, I love this. I love the stories where these critters and, you know, sea monsters are punched in the face. Does it say whether the shark was punched in the eye? No, but that's what you're told is go for yeah. the eyes. Yeah. The eye always seems to do it. I love that especially because I am terrified of sharks mm. or anything – that could eat me. It's just so unnatural. Right. Oh. Well, good for the teenager. Well, she fought off a shark. Yeah. Man. Or at least, you know, scared it off, whichever. A scare a scare down. What, are the, what would you call that? What would be the boxing equivalent of that? Anyway. <laughs> Survive in advance. I don't know. She won. Yeah. Oh, I don't think I could go back into the ocean after that, though. Terry, what is the longest... How long can you leave a car just abandoned in the road? I, I'm not sure. I mean, you see, occasionally you'll see something on the freeway, a car stuck or something, and it's there for a couple of days, and then it's gone. You always they, wonder. They, they call a wrecker, and they just pull it off, you know. But sometimes it's like, I don't know, if a, no one, if it doesn't cause a problem, if it's on a side street somewhere, it could just yeah. could it sit there indefinitely. I'm not sure. You always wonder what the history is there. Huh. Well, there is a 1990s vintage Ferrari that has been abandoned on a London street for two years, hmm. and it's finally been it's finally been booted by the local council and could be towed away soon. The registration for the 456 coupe ran out in April 2015, and it has been sitting in the same spot on the same street ever since. We had a car the other day that uh, a story similar to this with different car, but right. the. The amount of tickets on the car were more than the value right. of the actual car <laughs> at this point. You know, so maybe – and they were both out of the UK. So maybe they have some sort of, of issue where they don't just go pick up a car and move it. They just leave it there. Well, and this is a vintage right. 90s Ferrari. And I think, so it, I think it's been stripped for some of its parts already. There's, people have just you know stolen some doors and things off of it. Yeah. So, you know. Well, I'm grateful for this story because I've always wondered how long can I leave my car abandoned on the side of the road.
Um, do we have time for the the stadium food again? Or is it stadium food or is it? I can share one with you. Okay, let's do it. One more stadium food. This one is the New York Yankees. <laughs> they call it the tape measure. Okay. Yeah, it is a, uh, let's see here. It's a two-foot-long cheesesteak. Oh, my goodness. Available at Yankee Stadium, provided you have a friend to help you carry it back to your seats. Top of cheese whiz, because, of course, you need cheese whiz on your cheesesteak. Uh, peppers, onions, and unfortunately, it's, uh, as it says here, bring your own antacids. And they have a photo <laughs> of it, and they have a tape measure to measure this thing, and it is two feet long. Let me see the picture. A two-foot-long oh cheesesteak. And that will take you most of the game to consume, probably. But... I don't know. Cheese Whiz, peppers and onions, might be worth it. I know you're a fan of Cheese Whiz. Cheese Whiz is a good product for, you know, <laughs> time and place, of course. Sure. Time and place. But still, I think it's a it's a genuine thing to try. But yeah, two-foot-long sandwich. Oh. And you know it's not small. They're going to make this a, a girthy sandwich. So oh, yeah. So you can uh, really get your coronary going there. So hopefully. But, uh, yeah, go to a Yankees game and uh, buy a heart attack, apparently. And hopefully the Yankees win. Otherwise, you're going to have some very unhappy audience members throwing a two-foot-long sandwich at you if you're playing. <sighs> Weaponized food is what we're calling it. Cheese Whiz. A great product. Brought to you by Terry South from the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with Julie K. Nelson. We like to call her the Bomb Mom, and I'm surprised she can actually get into the building with a name like that. But she'll be joining us, and uh, we'll have an interesting conversation with her up next. This is The Matt Townsend Show. And I realize that everything... Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, now is part of the program that's probably one of my favorite parts of the program. And I'm not just saying that because she's sitting here right next to me in the studio. But she is a frequent contributor here on the Matt Townsend Show. And we're, of course, talking about Julie K. Nelson, the bomb mom, as we like to call her. And uh, I joked with Reed that it's – I can't believe you got in the building with a name like the Bomb Mom. <laughs> but welcome back to the show. That was given to me by Matt. I did not come okay. up with that. All right. And you brought a very special guest with you this morning. Yeah, very special. My 15-year-old son. Most people are out in Cancun on spring break, and I bring him to studio. How fun is that? And Daniel, you are here. You look excited, and you're wearing a very funny shirt that says Russia Forward, and it's – uh, President Putin sitting on a bear. <laughs> yep. Love it. Okay. So you're here to talk to us today about the science behind the teenage mind, hence your 15-year-old son, Yeah, exhibit A. So I brought him with me um, about uh, the science behind the brain development, morality, values. Um, I, I, think, I think it's so funny that he has this. And you read it. It was in Russian. So good for you, Jeff. Yes. You, you speak, <laughs> speak and read Russian. His sister just got back from living in Russia. And so that's what she brought for him because she knows teenagers are all about the weird T-shirts. Yes. You know? And oh, it's yeah. all part of their identity, how they kind of like assert their independence or their value systems or kind of some quirky ideas. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Yeah. You know where I would used to go for I, – I would go to Mervyn's. That kind of dates me a little bit. Do you know Mervyn's? Mm-hmm. Oh, I do. No longer in business that I know of. Mm-hmm. 
Anyway, sorry. And get the, get the weird tees, right? <laughs> yeah, the graphic yeah, tees. absolutely. So my, my, his sister knows him well and got him the graphic tee that nobody else has. But it's a little bit edgy. I mean, we've got Putin on a bear. Putin's right. not ex- exactly like popular here. Uh, over there, yes. Um, but she knew that it would be just something fun to kind of be independent in his, you know, his – uh, perhaps who is an identity from his from his friends, right? Um, different identity, and and kids want to be a little bit different in their teenage years. And so, no, I'm not loving the, the Putin, <laughs> the Putin uh, um, image, but I know it's a way for him to kind of be his own identity and and yeah. kind of just create who he wants to be. So, Daniel, when when kids at school see that shirt and other shirts that you have, do they really respond to that? Do they like it? Yeah, a lot of people were just like, whoa, that's a super cool shirt. <laughs> so did you choose that shirt or did you say that your sister picked it out for you? Um, I think we were talking um, over Skype one day and she was just like, what do you want from Russia? And um, it was a choice between a Russian hat or a shirt with Putin on a bear on it. So. Wow. See, and nobody else has that. And so I guess for the listeners today, I want you to, to know that there's a developmental process that happens really rapidly in early childhood where the brain starts forming at a rapid pace and as well as your body, like from birth to about five, huge changes. But then the other big change that happens before you're fully formed as an adult is during the, the adolescent years. And so a lot of changes happen physically. I mean, think about what goes on in your body during those right. teenage years as well as your brain. And part of that process is becoming your own person. Person, you know, breaking away from your parents, being a self-identity is formed. And mm-hmm. some of that t- t- is challenging the, the norms, the social norms, the family norms, the value systems, and creating your own sense of morality. Um, and so, you know, if he wants to wear a crazy T-shirt or whatever, you know, as long as it's not super offensive, I'm fine with that. You know, I just, I mean, whatever. He's a great kid. So kind of relax a little bit, parents, as, as your teen starts to just explore some new ways to express themselves, as long as it's, you know, lawful and not offensive. <laughs> um, but, you know, just kind of tries to be a little bit different than the crowd, perhaps, um, because they want to be their own person. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about perhaps morality um, and how that's your brain actually when it's formed is formed from the in to the out outer regions and then from the back to the front. So the front or the prefrontal cortex is what we call it, where the executive function is being formed, which is all your reasoning, your morality, your decision making, um, not fully formed there in the front until you're about 25. So if we think adolescents are a little bit, you know, poor judgment sometimes, yeah, that's the reason why. We, <laughs> we have can understand. Sense. They're yeah. not fully formed yet. Um, and so we want to guide, guide them along the way um, and give them a little bit of latitude because they aren't fully formed yet. And so as we uh, – it's interesting because Lawrence Kohlberg was a great um, theorist, scientist, social scientist, um, a psychologist, and he came up with this thing called the Heinz Dilemma a long time ago. I don't know if you've studied this in your <gasps> ethics class. Do you remember this? Oh, this is where you're trying to get the ketchup out of the bottle and you hit the, <laughs> you hit the sides of it or you get a knife. Yeah. This is a huge dilemma that has been a problem for hundreds of years. Yeah, I'm right with you. Jeff, okay. you're the best. Absolutely. <laughs> Different Heinz Dilemma. Um, yes, where he – he came up with this idea of which kind of resonates with us today because it kind of happens today with the morality of the pharmaceutical companies having a stranglehold on the pricing. Well, this was one where he would give it to kids, this dilemma, and say, well, this this guy, this druggist, he created this this drug um, that would save this, uh, you know, lives. And this other man wants it. But, you know, he he extorts everyone with the price, hmm. you know, way too much money. And this guy can't afford it, but he, he has to have that drug to save his wife's life. Yeah. So he breaks into the pharmacy to get it, you know, should he have done that? 
you know, because then he has to go yeah. to jail. So to save his life, his wife's life, does he do that because the other guy is being immoral? You know, right. he's charged kind of like that EpiPen thing. I mean, they're now the drug companies mm-hmm. are being, you because know, they were like, it used to be like under $50 for an EpiPen. And then they were like selling it for like 600 just because they could. Right. Yeah. So learning about morality. um, and how kids can think through things um, is really an interesting thing. So Kohlberg was more interested in not the answer, but the stages of uh, of becoming um, having becoming a higher having morality on a higher sphere. Not just so on the long the lower sphere is more like obedience and I don't want to get in trouble and self interest self preservation. And then yeah. as you get older and start d- developing more morality, it's more about humanity, understanding all sides of things, and more of a global thinker and more critical thinking. And so he wanted to see how that developed in the teenage years through Hmm. through young adults. So I wanted maybe do something fun with us today about um, talking about how morality changes. And so I brought Daniel just to kind of do a little fun example, not the Kohlberg um, Heinz experiment, okay? But some other games you can play with your teen to kind of see where they're at with their moral thinking and oh, their this values. Is great. It's the would you rather kind of thing. Yeah. Now, some of those are ra- kind of silly, you know, but I came up with ones that really do have a moral dilemma to them. And so we're not going to do the, you know, uh, the Heinz dilemma one, but maybe kind of see and have Daniel answer. And we're not so concerned with the answer because the answers are all right. Whatever you sure. say is fine. Yeah. So there's no pressure on the right or wrong. It's just why, how did you come to that? answer. And that's where a parent can guide the, the child and say, well, how interesting, even if you don't agree with the how interesting, how, how did you come to that answer? And then see where they're at on that spectrum of coming, you know, to become, the, the, to create their own value system. Well, now I feel safe answering some of these questions if you ask me, because now I know that there's no wrong answer. There is no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, here's one. You want to try this. Would you rather save the life of a starving African child? So let's go, th- let's do Daniel first. Okay. okay. Would you rather save the life of a starving African child who you've never met or become a Jedi master with the force and then have your own lightsaber. Now for a teen, that's a, that's a moral <laughs> dilemma because think about what you could do if you had the force, right? Daniel, what would you do? Um, you know, I don't, I don't really know what I would do with the force and the lightsaber. You know, I'd probably just get arrested. <laughs> so I'd rather probably save the life of African child I've never met, you know, Okay. I just want to point out how mature is that that Daniel recognized that maybe he shouldn't have that much power at such a young age or anybody should have that much power. Because he might get arrested. (laughs) Yeah. Good for you, (laughs) Daniel. What would you do, Jeff? I would save the African child Mm -hmm. because I agree with you, Daniel. I don't think I should be given that much power. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's it's the conversation that happens afterwards that you can even if you don't agree on the same side as your child, you can say how interesting. Well, this is the way what I would have chosen. This is the reason why sure. because you're still your child is still under the influence. Yeah. Now again, they can still be autonomous, have their own identity, but you can have conversations like this. So here's another one: Would you um, rather change your last name to be Hitler or never eat candy again? Again, this is hard for a teenager because you know they're all about candy. Okay, Daniel, which one? Uh, last name Hitler or never eat candy again? <laughs> that would be pretty embarrassing to have Hitler as your last name. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd probably not eat candy. I could. You maybe, could do without. Maybe. <laughs> Even those. Uh, what are those things you love? Those Sour Patch Kids. Oh, those yeah, are good. Those are really good. Yeah. So. Gosh, I love candy. Um, 
And I can't just change it later on, huh? I'd have to live with... You have with... to keep it. You can't go back and change it. You have to keep it. Oh, but I don't want to give up the candy. Maybe when I introduce myself to people, I would say, no, it's pronounced Heitler. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go with that one. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Great. Okay. How about this next one? I love that. I love the reasoning. Would you rather win the lottery of $20 million? Let's go to Jeff first, Okay. The lottery and win $20 million or amputate your right arm if it would cure cancer. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, okay. Win the lottery. Donate all of it to cancer research, which would only be like $10 million anyway because of taxes. But, yeah. <laughs> I – yeah. I, I I hope that doesn't sound selfish. I don't think that would be. I ten million dollars to cancer research—that's mm-hmm. a big deal. See, and I like what you're saying because they're both good things, right? Yeah. Okay, but it's the it's what Kohlberg would want to know is how did you arrive to that decision and seeing your process of oh, but I could do this and then do that is outside the box thinking. Yeah. See, and it's benefiting humanity, and you don't lose your right arm. So it's can I a, be sedated? It's self <laughs> It's self preservation, but it's also looking at the global picture. See, so that's you have. A, you have a well-formed prefrontal okay. cortex, Jeff. <laughs> Daniel, what would you do? It'd be pretty bad not having a right arm. <laughs> um, yeah, it depends. Like, what's the surgery like? <laughs> you would be under. You would. Okay. You would. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, the thing is, if I if I lost my right arm, uh, cancer would be cured immediately, right? Mm-hmm. So, and it's a guarantee. I don't know if I could live myself knowing that I donated the money and then nothing happened, really. Oh, Jeff. He's so noble. Jeff. Oh, now I feel like a, a dirty, rotten scoundrel. <laughs> no, no, hey, they're both good. Julie, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. When we uh, come back, let's uh, continue this fun game and exercise. And Daniel is ahead three to nothing, by the way, <laughs> if you're keeping score at home. Her name is Julie K. Nelson, the bomb mom, and she's helping us understand the science behind the teenage brain and the morality that goes with that. That We'll take a break. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's in St. George right now. And uh, we are talking with Julie K. Nelson, the bomb mom, who is the author of Parenting with Spiritual Power. You can also find her at a spoonful of parenting.com. But most importantly, she is the wife and mother of five children. One of those kids is here today with us. Julie and Daniel, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. And before the break, we were doing this really interesting and fun exercise that Daniel is just knocking out of the park. And I'm I'm starting to question my morals now. But uh, let's continue this game. It's, it's a lot of fun. And it, it really does get you thinking about what you would do in these situations. And it kind of 
gives you a sense of who you are. Maybe it does. It helps to question maybe some of your thinking, and then perhaps you come with a knee-jerk answer, like your son or your daughter would, and then you say, "Oh, that's so interesting. This is the way I would do it." And then they would go like, "Oh," and then they start to develop those more higher reasoning powers. Yeah. Maybe maybe greater development of morality, seeing things from different points of view, and see these conversations really help you in your parenting because they're the what ifs. There's no like you know right or wrong. They're not going to feel like they're at risk for losing anything. There's、mm-hmm. not you know, and so these are just fun, open ended. You know, they can go anywhere. You know what? Anywhere. This is the type of exercise that would work so well with my family. Not that they have a lack of creative answers, but we're so indecisive, <laughs> and we just need to decide. We need to see that you know we could go to the movies. Or we could go to the beach. They're both good options.、Mm-hmm. Just choose it. Let's move on、yeah. with it. Yeah. And can I also mention that these are ones I've specifically、uh, crafted for te- the teenage years to help with this moral development and value systems and discovering who you are. But you can start early on and play these games. And there's a lot of really、um, easy ones you can play with. You know, younger children, like from five to ten years old, doing things like, "Would you rather be a dog or a cat?" Yeah. You know, that are simpler. You know, that don't have quite complex. You know.、Um, Questions to them, so that kind of helps them still start thinking why. Why would I rather be a cat or a dog? Yeah. So look those up and play those games, so they can start developing that. Oh, that's good. You know. So there. Anyway, it's it's a fun game. So let's just see where you're at next.、Um, let's do Daniel first on this one.、Um, so, how about this one, Daniel? Would you rather have the superpower of flying or of reading everyone else's mind? Definitely reading people's minds. <laughs> And why? Why would that be your superpower? Um, I just, I'd have like a,、um, whenever I'm talking to people, I know exactly <laughs> what they're thinking. When I'm flying, um, I don't really need to get anywhere like fast.、Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just... Yeah. <laughs> see, and you can see in adolescence how important that would be because there's so much, you know, cloaking of who you are, and so knowing. See, that really reveals the adolescent brain.、Um, I don't know if as adults we really want to get into each other's minds. I mean, I'm almost like I don't want to know what you're thinking, you know, especially about me. So I'd rather fly. See, so you can see how different it is from adolescence to adult. I don't know what's your answer, Jeff. So I, I've always had dreams about flying. So I, I, I think I'm inclined to say flying. Although I'd probably be terrified if I could fly,、uh, I can certainly understand with wanting to read people's minds, though, just from a time-saving perspective, you know.、Yeah. But、uh, again, you brought up a great point. Like I know the types of things that go on in my mind. <laughs> I wouldn't want anybody reading my mind,、yeah. so maybe we just let people have their own thoughts. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly, exactly. So how about this one? This is a great one. Let's do、um, Jeff on this one. Do you w- would rather know the date of your death or the cause of your death? Ooh, hmm. I would, I would choose the cause of death because. You know, we should always be living our lives anyway, as if it's our last day, right?、Mm-hmm. And if I knew the cause, I could probably. Well, is it one of those things where I could change the outcome? No, no. Um. Oh gosh, that's like an impossible one to answer. I would still probably go with the cause.、Though. Okay, and Daniel, what about you? Yeah, I would not like knowing the day that I would die. I don't know. I. I would like to know the the cause as well.、Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's weird because even if you avoid it as much as you can, you'd end up dying that way. But 
you know, I'd rather not know the day that it would happen because I'd pretty much live in a a fear that oh, I need to do this, I need to do this, you mm-hmm. know, and. Mm-hmm. I think well, knowing the day that you die too, somebody could take it to the other extreme and just be like, well, I can just do whatever I want, you know, because I'm not dying until 20 years from now, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. So Right. Although if you'd like had death by drowning, you would never be around water ever just <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. I've, yeah. I've read stories about this hypothetical situation. How about this one? This is a great one. Daniel, would you rather be the smartest person in the world or the most handsome person in the world? Um, probably the most smartest. Uh, most smart. Is that even more? <laughs> and no, first, I sound dumb first, talking gonna... about how smart I'm going to be. <laughs> yeah. So why would you rather be the smartest person? Um, I go through school easy. <laughs> yeah. Spoken like a true teenager, right? I would I would rather be the most handsome person in the world because uh, I'm already married, so mm. you know that would stay the same. Um, but if I was the smartest person in the world, I feel like nobody would want to talk to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, although handsome people get that same thing, right? Well, but you're already married. I don't think I don't think that would change the Jeff's way my like, wife treats I, Jeff's me. Just like I already am the most handsome yeah, person exactly. in the world to one no, person at least. I don't think I would be able to get away with anything because I'm handsome. So I don't think a whole lot would change in our relationship. <laughs> you know, we're still in love, so that's that's what matters. So interesting from a from a single person to a married person. Yeah, they, yeah, and they're both great answers. Um, which kind of goes to this question: Would you, Jeff? Um, would you rather um, never have your mind get old, but your body gets old? Or never, because you're going to be aging, right? Mm-hmm. Or would you rather never have your body get old, but your mind does? Hmm. So you keep your body as a 30-year-old forever, but your mind eventually will go. Or you keep your mind as a 30-year-old and your body will go. Oh, my gosh. That is a difficult one because I, I you know, had a grandma that had Alzheimer's disease and I got to see the deterioration of her mind there. Um, oh, goodness. I would just say – I would say I would rather have a young mind. Okay. Yeah. Daniel? Um, so if I get to keep my mind, do it – you know, do I become like wiser or, or – Yeah. Because hmm. I, I want to be like the, the wise person on the top of the Himalayan mountains, you know. <laughs> you, <get a> mind, <laughs> you know, who's – you know, his, even though his body is like old and everything, but his mind is wise. Mm-hmm. You know. Okay. Oh, how interesting. It's interesting because I said I'd rather be handsome than smart, but then I'd rather yeah, uh, keep have, a, have a better mind than a better body. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So let's do one more just for fun. Um, would you rather have a nose that's, that grows like Pinocchio when you lie or you never get to shower again? Uh, the nose for sure. Can it can it retract? Because you have confidence in the fact that you're not going to lie much. Yes. Oh, that's an interesting little sub question. If it whether or not it retracts after you've told the lie. Mm-hmm. Mm, no, definitely the nose. Okay, Daniel. Yeah, I feel like it would be a really good motivation not to, <laughs> to lie. Absolutely. And, um, and no one would want to be around me to for me to lie to them <laughs> if I never showered. That's true. I'm not. I don't try to put myself in situations where I would need, where I would think I need to lie. So I think that would be an easier one to uh, 
to get away with. Great. Well, I want to. This has been so fun. These I've got lots more, but I just want to just as your parents are out there listening, do these kind of exercises from the easy ones all the way to these hard ones, um, and have these open ended conversations. And remember, these not to judge or to moralize or to uh, you know will condemn that was wrong because they're all good answers. Yeah. But um, maybe just ask some questions of Wow, how interesting. How did you get to that? And then um, have a dialogue about your value system, and you may not come to the same conclusion, but you can guide them in several similar. Overall, to overarching principles like how could we help out humanity, or how would you have a better quality of life, or how would you do the right thing? Like Daniel, well, I don't want to stink because no one will be around me, so I'd rather just really be careful about not lying. Yeah. And so you help to see inside your teenage, teenager's brain and see what's going on as far as their stages to morality. Well, Julie and Daniel Nelson, thank you so much for your time on the Matt Townsend Show. We really appreciate you, and that was so much fun. And I learned so much about myself, too. And, Daniel, you probably did, too. Well, uh, we'll let you go. And, we again, like I said, we appreciate your time. Go check up or uh, go look up Julie K. Nelson at aspoonfulofparenting.com. And when we come back, we'll be speaking with Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, which means our good friends at BYU Sports Nation are so fortunate now because they get to talk to me about what's coming up on their program. Spencer and Jerem, what's up? Oh, hey. Oh, Jeffrey. Hey, so um, I, I have a quote here I want to share with you, and I want you to tell me what you think it's in regards to. This is from LeBron James. LeBron man, James. I can't watch this anymore, man. I would like to see the kids decide who win this game. I mean, bruh, SMH. Last night. Yeah. <laughs> bruh. Bruh. Yeah, it was, uh, there was zero pace to that game. It was tough. I've, yeah, I've had better salsa Ooh. than that. Mango? Thick and, what is it? Thick and chunny, chunky. Thick and chunky? Conte. Oh, this this is made in New York City. Yeah, no, that of that. New okay, York City. New York City. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was oh. uh, yeah, it was a tough second. It wasn't good ball in the second half due to yeah, no flow. Gonzaga loses, which is a bummer, you know, for them. I, I think a lot of people in BYU Sports Nation were hoping uh, Gonzaga would win. That's what we kind of learned yesterday. Unless you had. Uh, you needed Gonzaga to lose in your bracket. A lot of people were like, yeah, it goes Zags, man. Well, as I said, my wife and I were voting for Gonzaga to win, too. <laughs> Gonzaga, yeah. That's why they lost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and apparently Terry said that there were there was a good portion of the audience that couldn't even see the game based on where they were sitting. Oh, in the University of Phoenix Stadium. I mean, this is a common dome problem. Terrible fan experience yeah. for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Hey, did you hear the news? That a certain football player is quitting football to become a sports broadcaster. Yep, Tony Romo. One of my friends calls him Tony Romanowski. <laughs> <laughs> what I was hoping thought? he would come back and play, I, but he announced yeah. he was retiring yesterday, and then all of a sudden today he's like the number one analyst for CBS. I'm really surprised he's not going to keep playing, but he's so injury prone, and I maybe he's like, I got enough dough, I can keep making decent coin, but not the same coin. Do you, yeah. do you think he's got a career? Or do you think he's got a future in that? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah? Yes. Absolutely. He's so well-spoken. Most, he's a really good dude. Most yeah. quarterbacks are well-spoken. That's my quarterback. they have to speak to their team, but uh, and they're 
the smartest player on the field. I think he'll be really good. And and he's very likable, as you said. By the way, Spencer, I'm hoping somebody includes that in my eulogy. He was a really good dude. He was a really good dude. <laughs> the end. All right, let's eat some lunch. Yeah. <laughs> let's have some For thick, goodness sake, some let's thick eat and, some cake. Thick and chunky salsa yeah. made in New York City. Hey, what's coming up on your show, you guys? Today's an interesting day because we're going to look at next season in the West Coast Conference. Gonzaga, of course, coming off the title game loss. St. Mary's, BYU. Why would BYU finish higher than third in the league? Why are we not? We're going to look at who comes back for each team, what's projected, some way too early top 25s from ESPN and Sporting News, featuring Gonzaga and St. Mary's. Where are they? Uh, We'll weigh in on that. Why would BYU finish higher than third, even if Eric Mika comes back? Hmm. Yeah. It's a loaded program, Jeffrey. Well, we've got to let you get to it because you are going on in exactly four minutes and 45 seconds. So Spencer and Jerem, knock them dead. Have a great show. Your math is better than Matt's. Thank you. (laughs) Talk to you tomorrow. Thanks. Ah, That was a nice compliment. It's not often these days that I get complimented on my math because I don't have to do math anymore. Thank goodness. I enjoy math. Don't get me wrong. But... uh, under pressure, it's, it's not as fun. Anyway, speaking of math, now we have about three minutes, four minutes and ten seconds until BYU Sports Nation. So let's share one more story with you before we get to the hero story of the day. A real horse running on a northern California highway, a real horse, followed by a mule. Commuters east of San Francisco on Monday were stunned to see a white horse and a brown mule running across I-680. Steve Birdo with Contra Costa, Contra Costa County Animal Services says the animals broke through a fence about a mile away. The pair adhered to the vehicle code and used an on-ramp to get on the highway. Authorities shut down lanes before 7.30 a.m. as motorists shot cell phone video and officers rounded up the four-legged fugitives. Birdo says the horse, a gelding named Stryker, appears to have led the breakout. He says Hank the mule is more of a follower. He is. Hank is more of a follower. I just want to know if they were in the HOV lane. Ooh, horse or vehicle. That is a citation you do not want to get. Mm-hmm. They will rack you. They'll rack up the the fees with that. Oh, my goodness. If they crossed over during one of those double lines. The double line? If they didn't use their turn signal as they were going into the next lane? Yeah. Wow. Trouble. Trouble. We've got trouble right here in River City. <laughs> Anyway, as you know, we like to end the show with our hero story of of the day, and today is another great one. A persistent six-year-old boy sees man lying in parking lot, saves his life. Six-year-old Carter Thorpe was sitting in the back seat of, of as his grandma, who calls his who he calls Mimi, drove through a Lowe's parking lot in Franklin, Virginia, in search of a space. When he saw something unsettling, a man lying on the ground, seemingly lifeless. The man who was sprawled across the pavement next to a truck started to twitch. And that's when Thorpe yelled at his grandma, Carolyn Cook, to turn around. Cook, thought her grandson, who says, who she says has an active imagination, was just exaggerating. She kept on driving, but Thorpe wouldn't let it go. No, you have to stop. He's hurt. He's hurt. He, you have to go back, he screamed. I said that a few times, and then she turned around to show me I was wrong. 
Thorpe told CBS affiliate WTKR uh, in Virginia. As Cook made a U-turn to prove the supposed man he saw was just fine, she saw a pair of feet peeking out behind a truck. Sure enough, a man was, as Thorpe said, lying on the ground. He was gasping for air, described Cook, who stopped her car in the middle of the aisle to run to his aid. She pulled out her cell phone and dialed 911. Luckily, another passerby stopped and performed CPR until an ambulance arrived and transported the man to a nearby hospital. Cook never got the man's name, so she wasn't sure what happened to him until his family reached out to her on Facebook this week, one week after the terrifying accident or incident. The man's family, who wished to remain anonymous, told her he suffered a massive heart attack and he would have died if it weren't for Thorpe's quick response. I still get weepy. I'm just thankful. Thankful that God put me in that parking lot when he did, said Cook. Carter would not take no for an answer. He was determined, and I'm glad he was. And she isn't the only one, of course. Wow. He is a hero. And this is a good lesson to parents, too. Parents, when your kids are trying to tell you something, take a minute and listen to them. Because in rare circumstances like this, it could save lives. Carter, you are our hero of the day. Well done, young man. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Just remember that you can be a hero, too. Just look for those opportunities because they are out there. And it may not be somebody that's dying of a heart attack, but uh, you can still find small and meaningful ways to help out and be a hero. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is The Matt Townsend Show.